3: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
4: Welcome to Perfection, Nevada, land of opportunity. You know how close I am to leaving this place right now? How close?
5: Where a man can make ah, ah! a clean living.
4: See, we plan ahead. That way we don't do anything right now. Earl, explain it to me.
6: Hey, Mindy what's the count
2: 640
5: in perfection they say there's nothing new under the sun but under the ground
4: these creatures are absolutely unprecedented
5: but where do they come from I vote for outer space no way these are local boys
4: but they bury a whole station wagon baby shake, baby shake, baby
7: shake, baby shake. Now this valley is just one long smorgasbord ah, we can make it
4: that's how they get you they're under the ground damn
8: oh, prairie dog burl
1: we arm ourselves we set perimeters we stand guard hey.
4: Kevin Bacon, we could get in People Magazine,
5: Fred Ward,
4: People, National Geographic,
5: Tremors.
4: We decided to leave this place just one damn day too late.
9: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary.
10: Broke into the wrong damn rec room, didn't you? Also
11: this week is author Jonathan Melville. Doing what I can with what I've got.
9: This week, we're looking at the 1990 comedy creature feature Tremors. The film stars Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward as Val McKee and Earl Bassett, two handymen living in the desert valley town of Perfection. They're hoping to get to greener pastures, but before they can, they had to save themselves and the town from some new residents of Perfection, huge voracious worms, which they dub Graboids. Tremors spun off three sequels so far and a television show, among other things. Our guest co-host this week, Jonathan Melville, has written a book about Tremors called Seeking Perfection, An Unofficial Guide to Tremors. So, Jonathan, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Tremors, and what did you think?
11: Well, the first time I saw Tremors was on the BBC here in the UK, um, late-night screening in a roughly 1992. So I must have been about 16 or 17 at the time. And, um, and I was a sucker, I guess, for monster movies and uh, sci-fi and horror, and I was immediately grabbed by by the film and that kind of mix of comedy and scares really and it's just got this real charm, this kind of easygoing charm to it, which was kind of infectious at the time. I have to sadly say that I had not
10: seen the whole thing until I watched it for the show. I remember the trailers. I remember seeing that image of the um the boardwalk kind of thing in front of the general store kind of moving, <laughs> and certain other images, but I never sat down to watch the whole film. It was nice to finally get a chance to see it. it I have to say, it's definitely, for me, it feels like a throwback. It feels at times like, like something that Roger Corman would have done in the 50s.
9: For me, I saw this one, I had just started working at the Star Taylor Theater. Don't look for it, it's not there anymore. I had started working there as an usher, and this was one of the first movies that I went in and did an aisle check on and an aisle check is going in and basically making sure that there are no hooligans putting their feet on the back of chairs or smoking grass or anything like that or obstreperous customers that kind of stuff and basically it's just an excuse for you to go stand in the back of the theater and watch a movie and this one just kind of holds a special place in my heart because of that memory and because of all the times cleaning the theaters and hearing that Reba McIntyre song and everything and this was one of those weird movies where Doing aisle checks like that, it took me years before I finally sat down and watched it all from beginning to end. Otherwise, I was watching this in this kind of weird, like Godardian 15 minutes up front, five minutes in the middle, 20 minutes over here to the side kind of thing. And I absolutely love this film. It definitely holds a place in my heart for that reason, as well as it just being a really fun film. And I will say that it took me years to see the sequels to it, but I'm really glad that I did. This is a really strong franchise. We've talked about other franchises on the show before, like the Howling franchise, that kind of stuff. This one, it it is much more even keel than some of the other franchises that are out there.
10: I'm sorry you had to watch the Howling. I remember on that show, you just going through, okay, and then number four, uh, uh, five, uh, yeah. uh, uh-huh, five, uh-huh.
9: There has never been a Tremors movie that was originally written for something else, and then just they threw in the Graboids instead. So that's one of the really strong things about this. It's not like Hellraiser, where you just take a script, you throw Pinhead in, and now you have a, a, a Hellraiser film. So they didn't do that for these films, which is great.
10: Pinhead goes to camp?
11: We have such sights to show you. I mean that is the real beauty, as you say, Mike, of these films. That they're, they're written by the same people all the way through, and that that um, that tone is consistent. I think,
9: even though it's nice that they're kind of doing the evolution of the creatures like each one has a different thing but I know we'll get into more of the sequels and stuff as we go along first let's talk a little bit more about the the film itself I mean it is a pretty straightforward monster film I mean Rob you mentioned that it kind of felt like a throwback I mean I was reminded a lot of like the killer shrews but a much better killer shrews and I think one of the things that really kind of makes this movie work so well is the use of the special effects and this being a pre-digital film there's so many great uses of miniatures and forced perspective and just you know the the way that they made this movie you can just tell that there's a lot of craft even though it wasn't a big budget film by any stretch
11: well yeah you're right um i mean it was um about 11 million dollars for the for the first film and these effects, I mean, when I first thing to say is when I first watched it, I didn't realize there were all these miniatures. I probably didn't know much about miniatures and, and the different things you could do with effects back then. But um, watching it in recent years, before I started the book, I didn't realize quite what a mix of, um, of models and uh, full-scale was going on in it. So, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's such a great job. And I think even when you, when you start explaining to people which bits were um, hand puppets and which bits were full-size, people just don't believe it sometimes. They're like, no, that's, that's definitely a, a full-size creature. No, it's not. Just, no, there's some amazing, amazing shots in there.
9: Well, that was one of the things I really liked about your book was pointing out all those things that I did think. I mean, I thought they had, I don't know, 10 full-size graboids that they were using in different shots and stuff. And it was just like, oh, no, no, this was a miniature. And no, this was a, you know, notice that they're never in the same shot at the same time. And it's just really well-done filmmaking so that the effects aren't so present that you're just like, oh, God, that looks terrible. Or how fakey that is. Or, oh, of course they did that with a miniature. No, they just integrated all so well. They were just really, really clever with the way that they handled things.
11: Yeah, I mean, they spent a lot of time planning before before they went on location. They spent a lot of time working out who's going to do what. The Skotak brothers, Dennis and Robert Skotak, were doing the miniatures. And uh, yeah, they they actually, I think they, they they aimed to shoot more full size than they ended up doing. I think they realized that it just wasn't going to work. And so these guys were kind of brought in a few times brought back during the shoot and after the shoot to film more uh, of the, uh, more miniatures basically because they did so well
9: and this movie hits a lot of the beats that we're familiar with when it comes to kind of creature feature kind of things I mean the way that the characters are introduced and you do have these strong protagonists you know that I mentioned up front the Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward characters and their chemistry is fantastic and that's one of the things that you can really kind of hang your head on as you get into this film is being able to watch these two guys and the way that they interact and we explore the story through them the way that they experience things mostly the time though there are some good scenes that don't necessarily have these guys in them which I like that I mean, the pacing of this film I think is really well done it does ha- harken back to that kind of old monster movie kind of thing but the thing that I like is that it's they can mix the laughs with the scares pretty easy. And I won't say that this is a really frightening film. Like I wouldn't hesitate to show this to, you know, uh, like a niece or a nephew kind of thing, but it does have its moments where it's just like, Oh wow, I didn't expect that. And I, I thought that they did that really well. And then even more than just Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon being these characters that you actually have a fully fleshed out, cast of characters where you really actually kind of care about these people that are in perfection, and they all have their own personality. So it's not like cardboard cutout characters that populate the the rest of the film. You know, just people that you're waiting to die kind of like some of the old horror movies where you just have you know the professor and the pretty girl and then that's it you know that the rest of the cast is pretty much in jeopardy
11: yeah i guess in a lot of films it's kind of that there are a lot of the red shirts aren't there there's the the people that are you just know are going to get killed off just because they need someone to kill off but with this one i think it's difficult when you first watch it to work out who's going to get killed if anyone Fred Ward and kevin bacon are just a great double act really and I think when they came on to it, they said they wanted to act like real cowboys, uh, which you can tell in some of the language that they use in the film, which we'll talk about later, the way that it was... Uh, maybe didn't quite get past the, the ratings board. But, uh, but no, these guys, they, they, have, they seem to be having fun, and there's some great moments. I mean, I mentioned in the book some of the throw, throwaway moments that I noticed, including in just in the sort of first 10 minutes when they're putting together one of the, the fences and Kevin Bacon is trying to hammer a nail uh, into into the fence, and I think he misses about ten times, and I think in a lot of films they maybe cut that out as a blooper, but in this one. You just see Fred Ward looking at him as if to say, what are you doing? Hey guys,
1: it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 30,000 feet so sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus that's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life no purchase necessary BDW, void, prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus
11: and they leave it in and it's really nice that and then of course as you say the characters everyone gets their sort of moments in the spotlight uh, and you find a bit a little bit out about them uh, so no, it's a great uh, great cast and really works the thing that's
10: interesting when we look at the group of characters is is the Michael Gross character and his wife played by Reba McIntyre, and this was in 1990, so this was before all of the militia stuff that really took place in Michigan, and we started to see a lot of that sort of like survivalist people and you know heavy weaponry and everything hanging yeah. around the house. I think it's kind of funny how. In the beginning, they, they're they kind of making fun of them a little bit about, oh, yeah, yeah you're going to save, you know, World War Three is going to happen. Yeah, okay, whatever. And then in the end, actually, they become part of the linchpin and how they all have to kind of work together. It's not just the survivalists, but it's all the other people kind of working together. It's it's the heavy firepower plus
11: the, the brains that kind of get them there. Of course, it's at the time... Um, Michael Gross was best known for family ties, wasn't he? And, and here in the UK, we did have family ties, but I think it was obviously much, much bigger in America.
10: In his character on there, he plays uh, the station manager of a public television station, and he's like this liberal. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Michael J. Fox is his conservative Son, so it's it's kind of funny to watch him go from this, you know, sort of wimpy, I guess people would say, kind of liberal milk toast and family ties as the head of the of the family to um, being this, you know,
11: like I said, militia guy. Yeah, and isn't it amazing that the, the casting director, you know, decided on this guy, this guy that everyone knew as this liberal TV star, uh, and thought he's perfect for this role. It's amazing, and they actually filmed. They started filming Tremors. I think it was, or, or he went to the set the day after the rap party on Family Ties. So not much time to really change change characters. But no, he's brilliant, and Reba McIntyre as well. And Reba was really, I think, meant to be... I mean, she was a... I don't know if she was a bigger star at the time, but in the world of music, she she certainly was huge. I think that uh, Universal certainly viewed her as a bigger star, because when it came to the sequel, which we'll talk about later, they wanted her back for it to be a theatrical release, whereas Michael Gross was was kind of secondary so it's interesting although he kind of rose up through the ranks reba was really one of the big ones for the studio
10: and thinking about the timing on that i think this may have been her first like foray into acting because i mean i know that she had like a tv sitcom a few years after this but i don't remember her in anything in the late 80s i think she was just you know a country singer
11: yeah i think that's right i think this was her first role and they asked her to to fly out and test for it, and she got she got the part. But of course she her she was signed to another part of of Universal. I think it was MCA, so she was part of the the Universal family, I suppose. And they thought, let's just try her out for this. But uh, but no, what a great pair! They just they work so well. And uh, as you said earlier, Michael Gross is yeah. People make fun of him and and his survivalist instincts, but. He's the guy that kind of – he has the rec room, doesn't he? He does the – he knows how to to beat the creature.
9: His attitude towards everything and just um, that they are these kind of nuts, but they end up being so helpful to the plot. I mean, just the the chemistry between all these actors – just works so well i mean I, i'm a huge victor wong fan so seeing him show up in this is terrific seeing ariana richards who this was what like three years before she was in jurassic park so i guess she was just kind of fated to uh battle you know big creatures and scream a lot <laughs> as a kid
11: <laughs> yeah well this was one of her i think she'd been in a few things before this i'm just thinking but i spoke to the casting director for the book pam dixon was the, the casting director and they said at the time that um, apologies if I quote lots of things at you from the book, but uh, but um, she mentioned that because Ron Ron Underwood, the director, was quite was really quite new to this was his first feature, uh, they wanted to surround him with people that they knew they could trust that would make it easy for him. So people like Michael, again like Gross and Kevin Bacon and Victor Wong and Charlotte Stewart who plays Ariana Richards' mum. They were known to be great character actors, so so they were all brought in as this kind of ready-made community, and they knew that they could they could work together, and they were brought to Lone Pine in California, where it was filmed, where they used to film all these uh, westerns back in the day, and uh, various films like Star Wars, one of the Star Wars, sorry, Star Trek films. Was made there, and lots of films, and uh, so they were all brought there, and they were they had to bond. They weren't close to weren't too close to L. A. Uh, they had to live in their their motels and hotels, and so they just had to kind of get on with it and, and be be uh, be together all the time. So there was they they sort of pushed them into this community almost, and, and it really really does work.
9: Well, speaking of Star Trek, B. Besh is in this, and she was in uh, Star Trek Two.
11: That's right. Yes, yeah, she's in it. Yeah, she's the uh, the wife of of the doc. It gets uh, gets pulled underground in the that great shot with the, um, the station wagon. I think it is.
9: Which you describe in the book is not necessarily being the easiest thing to shoot.
11: No, that's right. They had the the fake desert. The I think it was vermiculite that they used, and uh, that was kind of meant to be uh, a fake sand that they could pull people through and put into a hole. And you know, they could put this this vermiculite into the hole and then pull things under. And uh, but they they misjudged. The strength of the um, of the material, and uh, I, th- I believe it uh, it kind of hardened as they were trying to carry out this stunt, and so things got stuck in the in the, in the dirt. This expensive stunt, which was going to cost them quite a few dollars, really didn't work. And in the film, the end product, it looks great, and it's a really kind of nail biting scene, quite tense. But really, it was all done with with mirrors, really, and uh, fake perspectives and and just putting the camera in the right angle because they they couldn't get it right in the on the first attempt. Very clever.
9: So and of course as I'm watching Tremors the first time, I'm being reminded of one of my other favorite movies in the world, which is Dune. And seeing these basically they're sandworms and we have turned the uh <laughs> turned the the cast of characters into the Fremen as they're trying to not bring the worms to them because it's all about any kind of rhythm or noise is what brings the worm. Loving the scene where they're finding the safety of rock and and uh, doing their whole uh, pole vaulting from rock to rock and stuff. I was like, oh, that was very clever
4: as well. We have to get to that mountain of rock. We have entered the time when all will turn against us and seek our lives. It's further than I thought. A worm is sure to come. I'll plant this thumper. That should divert it. Remember, walk without rhythm and we won't attract the worm. It will go to the thumper.
7: I'm ready.
11: Fake rocks. A lot of those rocks were were not real, and it's it's a lovely moment because it adds some more humour to it. So it is this, and that, that's the thing which we should maybe just talk about briefly. So I suppose what what is Tremors? Is it a comedy? Is it a horror movie? Is it a science fiction movie? Is it a western? <laughs> what what is it? And I think at the time they didn't really know. And watching it now, it's kind of still hard to work out what it is. But it's not a comedy anyway. It's it's a drama with with sci-fi and. What do you guys think? Is it What is it? <laughs> I think it's a good mix.
10: I mean, for me, I've always enjoyed sort of like cross-genre. You know, I like things that, that have a good mix. And for me, I thought it was a good mix of all of it in that way. And that's what made it entertaining, because I think if it was too serious, the thing would kind of collapse under its own weight, kind of like, like I said, the 1950s uh, sci-fi films that I sort of feel that maybe it's uh, – Sort of a um, stepchild of. I think the fact that it does have a good mix makes it watchable and, and quotable.
9: And I like that we don't have that scientist character or anybody who really knows what the heck is going on. I mean, as close as we get is is the the main female character, Rhonda LeBec, played by Finn Carter, who is a seismologist, but she does. she's never encountered anything like this before. And we don't have her necessarily, you know, smoking a pipe and saying, well, of course, I believe that this is happening and this and this. And, you know, talking about the life cycle of the creature and all these kind of things, the stuff that they parodied so well in, like, Top of the Food Chain, a.k.a. Invasion, you know, we don't have that character. We don't have, um, you know, the <laughs> Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon— Aren't necessarily the best protagonists to have around. I mean, they're very clever, but really, when the movie starts out, it shows that these guys are kind of losers and everything. So they're not like the dashing Air Force captain who's coming in and saving the day or anything. So I like that they're taking these things and kind of turning them on their head a little bit with all this stuff. And I mean, even the fact that the scientist in the film is a female versus, you know, the typical male scientist from the 50s, where it's just like you know, oh well, my my readings have uh, you know shown this to be true, kind of thing. So I like that it's familiar territory that is uh, subverted constantly. So I like that there are the scares and the thrills, but there
10: are the laughs as well. And to me, this is another thing we talked about on our Saturday Night Fever episode. All of these people are working class. There's no like real rich guy. There's no real you know, as you're saying, hyper intelligent person, they're just average folks. And I think that's what also works for it is that I mean, I get the feeling that I could i like I've known people like the Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon characters. I, I've known people like the Michael Gross survivalist guy. I mean it's just these are just people that I've either grew up around or have run into because they're either members of my family or they're, you know, people that I grew up in the neighborhood with.
9: Well, I love the Robert Jane character who. Uh,
1: it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? No bridges necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: I played Melvin Plug,
9: who's just kind of this a-hole kid. You know, it's like he's not the endearing kid that you want to pull through or everything. You know, he's just, he's kind of a jerk. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's how people really are. So it's not like that, you know, these are, are uh, loftier characters.
11: And it is interesting that they also, although Rhonda, the character of Rhonda the Scientist, doesn't have a clue what's going on because she's never seen these before they keep they do keep saying to her but what is it what's going to happen they, they still expect her because she is sort of the person that's uh, well she's not in charge but she's got she knows her science they keep asking her still it just goes back to that thing of this this i mean the, the confusing thing of tone and that idea of is it sci-fi or is it comedy or what is it that's what stopped it getting made for many years to mention briefly you know, before it before it's actually entered production uh, they were taking this around the various studios, and nobody wanted it. Nobody got it. They were just like, what is this thing? So that did cause problems for them. And I think we're quite lucky that it actually ended up getting made at all, because many studios just didn't didn't want it. The only thing that I can figure with this film in
10: terms of tone is that it kind of sits, I would say it kind of sits on the same shelf with the Joe Dante films a little bit earlier, which is funny you're talking about Howling. It feels like something that Joe Dante could get away with, where you could have horror stuff and you would have comedy, you know, gremlins, piranha, you know, all of that kind of stuff for some reason.
9: Yeah, I can definitely see that. And especially with the use of, you know, character actors, known faces, familiar faces, I I think that it is a, a good comparison. I like, though, that it's a little less jokey than Dante, but it definitely, I can see that being kind of a a dotted line between some of his films and this film. It is a shame that because it isn't such an easy thing to categorize that, you know, it doesn't come out of the box ready to be made kind of thing. Like, okay, yeah, all the tropes are there. Point A, point B, point C, they're all going to be hit. It's kind of a shame that these films are always the ones that are more difficult to get made. You know, they, they seem to be made despite the studios rather than with the help of. So I'm glad that Tremors is something that finally came to the big screen.
10: And it's one of those things that becomes a cult favorite because it has that, because it isn't just one thing. I mean, I'm sure that you know, for you, Jonathan, that it's part of the reason why you found it compelling enough to spend the time to do a book.
11: That's right. When I first watched this, there was a real that combination of humor and, and, and drama and horror that really uh, interested me. And I just didn't want to write a book that was just about a typical horror film. That wouldn't have really been interesting, I don't think, enough for me. And it, it was that mix of, of styles and uh, things that, uh, that really appealed.
9: All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of Tremors, Ron Underwood. <laughs> Now you've been making movies since you were just a little kid right
5: um, yeah I guess uh, about ten or so but i mean they were they were kind of uh uh crude films back then, but I was always uh I always loved making films, and I still do just as much as I did when I was ten. yeah, you're always learning things <laughs> doing trying things and uh finding out what you don't know now were you making those in super Eight or sixteen or I did. Super 8 for my childhood years until I was in college, and then I started doing 16-millimeter. And I kept doing 16-millimeter films for quite a long time. I did short films after I got out of school, and they were all in 16-millimeter. And uh, so I did a lot of shorts, and, and even my first television things were all for in 16-millimeter 16, 16
9: when you were making these, what kind of movies were they? What kind of inspired you when you were a kid? I was
5: interested in trying tricks with my camera and I would do animated films animating my parents around the yard or, uh, you know, stop frame animation. and something that I have always loved. And as I was getting older, like when I was in high school, I would take on subjects that interested me. I did a film called Did Anyone Ask the Cow? about Our consumption of meat, and in I did a film. I think that at the same time in high school, about uh, pollution and ecology. I did a film about religion and what it was all about. So I I was actually tackling some things when I was in high school that were kind of serious. And and one of the things one of the Experiences that really led me to want to be a professional filmmaker was um, I was an exchange student in Sri Lanka and I, I took my 8mm camera with me and had some amazing experiences in different places around the country. One was Hindu pilgrimages, a pilgrimage at Katradama, which is in the jungle and people go... Actually, from different faiths, I had Buddhists there as well, and Muslims, I believe, too, but it was primarily a Hindu pilgrimage, and they would prove their faith and their religion by doing incredible things that they vowed to do there, like being pierced with meat hooks in the skin of their back and hanging for, for the day or... Stripping down naked and rolling around a temple, in, uh, until they were bleeding. I mean, just incredible things that I was amazed at, and it just—I was blown away by what people would do to prove their faith and how how faith was so important to them. And then when I got back to the states as part of my uh, exchange student service. Went around and showed the film to people, and people were just so blown away by it. And I, it sort of moved me and made me want to become a filmmaker. And also the experience of being in Sri Lanka and seeing um, movies like there was a John Wayne film playing, and people would be sitting in these, this barely what, what was barely a theater just these very hot rooms with a screen, watching this John Wayne movie just totally enthralled in it. And I just, it really opened me up to the, the importance of cinema and, and what, what cinema could do for crossing cultural bounds. So boundaries. So it was, uh, that was quite an experience.
9: So you've been kind of on this trajectory since you were 10 years old. That's kind of amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I just so. How did you get into doing the ABC Weekend Specials?
5: Because of my experience with stop motion and Steve Wilson, Brent Maddock, and my, and I all met in film school at USC. Steve was uh, an amazing stop-motion filmmaker from way back when he was a kid, and so we joined up um, after school and started doing educational films using stop-motion. Brent and Steve often wrote the films. Uh, sometimes Steve would do the animation. We did one film that was uh, about how to write a term paper that actually uh, was, was set in the future and Brent and Steve wrote the script. Steve did the animation of the robot. This girl had, uh, a teenage girl had a, a robot at home, and she thought she would get him to write her term paper when it was assigned to her. And the robot was rather cunning, and she didn't see that he was actually getting her to write her own term paper and teaching her how to do it at the same time. And when we finished it, we were... Just saying that this robot character would make such a great character in a feature film. And so Brent and Steve started working on a, a script that ultimately became Short Circuit. And it was, it came out of doing that educational film. And we did lots of, um, educational films using, uh, dimensional animation, stop motion. Uh, a, another one we did was about the reference section of the library, and books came to life and trapped the, this kid in the library overnight and and scared him to death. When they were getting ready to do the mouse and the motorcycle, uh, I think Steve Wilson had been working with John Matthews, the animator, and and he introduced me to him, and and so we uh, uh, I got involved with. The Mouse and the Motorcycle, which was a really wonderful experience because it was a book that I was very familiar with and Beverly Cleary was an author who, who, um, my kids were reading and everything, so we were very, uh, excited about being involved in that. And that, making that film sort of gave some credibility to me as a filmmaker for Hollywood because before that they just couldn't see how these short films really related. But that film was, um, uh, got a Peabody award and was nominated for an Emmy. So it it sort of opened up a, a whole another avenue for me in terms of filmmaking.
9: Now was runaway what Ralph, was that the sequel to it? Yes.
5: Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and I did that one, too, and that was, that was a lot of fun. Same character of Ralph the Mouse, getting into trouble different ways.
9: So how do you go from that to tremors? <laughs>
5: well, let's see. It was a long process. I think Mouse and the Motorcycle, I think, was probably about 1985.
1: Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten Lucky?
8: Lucky?
5: On, uh, television, it was a ABC two-part weekend special. And then when that film got some awards and that sort of thing, Disney offered me a film called Halloween House, which became, later became Hocus Pocus. Because I had a talking cat in Mouse and the Motorcycle, and they thought, well, if he can work with talking cats, uh, we have a talking cat in, in Hocus Pocus, or uh, what was Halloween House then. So, that's how it. Uh, I, I was able to sort of get into features for the first time, although I never made it because I was kind of naive about the way filmmaking went, and and I I never um, actually got past trying to get a new draft of the script together. So all through that time, Brent and Steve wrote Short Circuit after we'd done that film about. Um, it was called the Library Report, and uh, originally I was going to direct that, but I was—I hadn't even done the math from the motorcycle yet. So the studios, uh, the studio that did that Tristar, was not very excited about me as a director. In fact, I, I was just a hindrance to the project even getting sold. So I stepped out of that, and right after it sold, Brent and Steve. And I got together and they said, well, what could we do that would be a film that a first time director could do? And so we thought maybe a horror film would be a good, good way to go. And Steve had had this idea back many years before when he was out in the desert, sitting on a rock, wondering what would happen if there were creatures under the sand. He, uh. Brought that up to Brent and me and, and we thought it was a great idea. It was also something that could be done for a budget because of the monsters being underground most of the time. So that was kind of appealing too. They, uh, we, we went around with that idea to the various studios. Brent and Steve had a lot of credibility after getting short circuit produced. So we, they wrote a, we, we went, we, we, we didn't have a screenplay, but we went and pitched it at studios. And everybody just blankly looked at us like we were absolutely nuts, and we never... We couldn't get any traction. So we just couldn't even... We just couldn't get anybody's interest at all. They thought that it was such a ridiculous idea. So it seemed that it would never get um, made unless there was a screenplay first, at least. So... It, it took um, a number of years. It was about five years before we got the green light to do the film, and we were working on it off and on all through those years. Finally, when the screenplay went out, almost immediately, overnight, it was universal expressed interest and it became a reality. Isn't that too
9: shabby, universal biting right off the bat?
5: Yeah, they and they wanted to they made it as a uh what was kind of a common thing back then for low budget films was as a negative pickup deal. So they didn't they weren't they had um, they made it but they also were making it kind of uh under the radar a little bit. So it was uh it was definitely one of their low budget films
9: how similar was the screenplay to what ended up on screen?
5: It was very similar. The, I mean, the tone was very much captured in the screenplay, which was kind of unusual. Um, certainly for horror films at the time, the horror films didn't have a lot of comedy in them at the time. And so it was it was very unusual and it was very strongly character-based, which was what I loved about it so much and and made it unique and, I think, hold up over time. I Really, the only differences between the screenplay and the movie are some things that we had to cut out because of budget problems. Um, as we were getting close to production, uh, the studio was saying you have to cut certain things to get to the budget, and so we had a, a, a few... Scenes that, uh, were, were cut out. A couple, uh, the water tower in town we had, uh, falling down in a sequence that, uh, that we had to lose and a, a couple other things that had to go out because of budget considerations. But otherwise, it was very much the, the script that, that, uh, we shot and that very much resembled the movie. The, the ending was different. We had a an ending that was, I think, a, a little kind of, um, uh, for me I, for all of us, we, we thought it was a, a little smarter, but um, it was because of an incredible preview we had with an audience where the audience chanted through the end of the movie uh, as Val and Rhonda were talking. They were chanting, kiss her, kiss her, kiss her. And so when the lights came up and we, uh, had a discussion with the studio executives, uh, the studio said, they will go mental if we have him kiss her at the end. So I don't think that the audience ever liked it anymore when he kissed her, but, but that's what, uh, they insisted on doing for the end of the film. In the original ending, Val and Earl drive out of town. They finally have made it out of perfection and are on their way to Bixby, and Val's going to light a cigarette, and he asks Earl for for it because he doesn't have the cigarette lighter, and he thinks Earl must have, and then they realize that Rhonda still has it. And uh, Kevin Bacon says, damn, that was a good lighter, and he does a U-turn. And that's the, that's the end of the film, that, as written and as, as we shot. But the studio thought that it would be more fun for him to kiss her at the end and imply that they were off together.
10: Was
9: there ever an explanation for where the Graboids came from? Not in the script.
5: This was also another <laughs> thing that uh, some of the executives uh, at, at the studio really wanted us to have an explanation and we thought part of the fun was that it was unknowable in this time period. What, you know, in this short time that the characters had with this problem, you really wouldn't know. And that that was part of the fun, that everybody had their own theory and nobody knew. But when, after that preview, and and the preview went extremely well, but the studio said, well, let's have uh, Val kiss Rhonda at the end and let's, explain how these uh, graboids came to be so we we shot a sequence that um, was that was to open the film where an earthquake happens out in the middle of the desert and it rele- it releases these graboids and in the sequence that we shot in additional photography we had a coyote get eaten by a graboid after the earthquake happens. And it was really kind of a fascinating study in perception, audience perception, because after that sequence was added to the beginning, the audience felt that we were cruel to animals throughout the film and all throughout. I mean, the horses, they just couldn't stand what we did to the horses and to, you know, they just, they were um, so upset, but it was all set off by this opening scene because the audience never had a problem with it before, how we dealt with animals. So so it was interesting. After starting the film with a coyote being eaten, they, it changed the perception of the audience, and the studio dropped the whole notion of explaining where they came from, which we were very happy about. The, they, they actually, I think... It, as I recall, it was, um, the studio was being sold to, uh, the Japanese company Mitsush- uh, Mitsushido and, uh, and it was because of that and how popular earthquakes are in Japan that they thought that it would help the film in ja- Japan and can make the new owners really like the film. I think that's sort of part of why that whole thing came about how did the cast come about? I've always loved the cast for this film. We were just really blessed with people being interested and it was really as a result of Brent and Steve's script which was had very good characters especially for a horror film at the time and so I had a meeting with Kevin Bacon very early it wasn't a go film without the cast so we had to find somebody that was approved by the studio to make it a go-picture, and and Kevin responded to it. We had a great meeting, and we were off and running. And then it was, you know, who was going to be Earl? Uh, there again, the, you just never know. <laughs> that the, You're under a lot of pressure f- from people around the industry who have who have power, who are not necessarily uh, have the best interests of your particular project in mind. But I remember one one agency was really pushing Michael Caine to the studio executives for Earl, and I mean Michael.
8: With the Lucky Land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Michael
5: Caine is a great actor, but wow, it would be just such an unusual film to have Michael Caine be out in the desert. And then James Garner. The studio really wanted James Garner for this. And, I mean, I like James Garner, too. I mean, these are great actors that were being suggested. It just didn't really feel like what we were thinking for the film. And then later we found out James Garner was suing the studio over residuals or royalties for Rockford files, and they were trying to help smooth that over. There's always some unusual things going on behind the scenes that are not necessarily best best for the film. But um, we sent it to... Fred Ward had been in some wonderful films around that time. And he had been in a universal film recently, too, so they they liked him and we sent the script to him, and he responded immediately. Finn Carter was very much not the kind of leading lady that the studio really wanted. Uh, they wanted a more traditional leading lady, but they they relented, and we thought that she was great for the role but to have her, we had to have somebody, we sort of said we would get somebody with a very high TVQ so that they could sell it to television more easily if we could have Finn Carter for that part. And so, uh, we saw people who had been doing a lot of television and Michael Gross was somebody who came in. And Michael, I, I just, I didn't see how he could ever be the right person for the role because of the thing that I knew him from with family ties. And it just seemed so different, but he came in my office and read and jumped up on my desk for, and I believe there were graboids under the floor. I mean, he made it totally credible and I, I just was blown away. So we, we, and we were, we were so lucky to have him. He just was amazing for the role. And then, Reba was a huge MCA star which was a universal universal's company. She had been interested in getting into films. She hadn't done a, uh acted in a film yet, although she'd been in her videos. And I was I was very reluctant about her just because I as a first-time feature filmmaker, I didn't I I wanted actors who were, you know, really good actors and so she flew herself out to read for the part and was incredible she was just she just uh, once again blew us away we were so lucky to get her because she brought an earthiness and and reality to the role she was so comfortable with guns and everything just because of her upbringing with her dad and everything so uh, she was great for the role.
9: Yeah, I had a hard time believing that that was her first acting
5: role. Yeah, she was just amazing. And it led to a huge uh, acting career, of course. So, I mean, she she's the real deal. And then we just had some wonderful actors like uh, Tony Gennaro and Charlotte Stewart and Robert Jane and uh, Ariana Richards, and Richard Marcus, and Victor Wong, and I would just, we were Conrad Bachman, B.B. Dish. We had just an amazing group of actors.
9: Yeah, I've always been a big Victor Wong fan. Yeah,
5: he was great. He was really, he really was totally into it, as all of them were. They were and that's what really made the film work, was that they all totally committed to this outrageous idea and made you believe that these creatures existed. And that's the best special effect you can get is an actor's commitment because that makes you believe it.
9: The chemistry between Ward and Bacon is just amazing. I'm
5: blown away by how much they connected with one another, with, with their roles. I mean, it really, that chemistry, I mean, it's certainly the writing sets up that relationship, but you need two actors who can pull that off and, and they certainly did it.
9: I think you're really smart too with the way that you, when you show the creature, when you don't show the creature, kind of that Jaws thing, it's almost like, you know, less is more in this case.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, partly that was by design and we were influenced by Jaws, certainly, because Jaws did it so effectively and Was more effective because of the, because they didn't show the shark all the time. And they had their problems on jaws with mechanical sharks and all. And, and, and so that led them to that. And we were led to it by budget as well, but it also is just more effective. We did add some shots after the film was finished and uh, the studio was so excited about it and let us continue shooting, or actually wanted us to shoot for that extra kiss at the end and, and the new opening. And so they were open to having us add some visual effects shots as well. And so I I wanted to add a couple shots like under underground POVs, virtually impossible shots to make. But I thought it would be Cool to have such a thing to get a sense of movement through the ground, and so that was not something that was in the script. But I thought it was a way of suggesting their movement without seeing them. And even the the passbys that we did underground with uh, the creature moving past the camera was was in added were added shots that we. Decided to do after Universal said, um, "Would you like to do some more?" So those those shots I think helped create the sense of of these creatures underground too. This fellow Gene Warren, who had worked on uh, some of the Cameron films with Gail and Hurd, was an effects person that we went to who for uh, showing the point of view through the ground, and I, I thought. He, he was just kind of brilliant in in the way he did this with by putting the camera in a, t- a, a cylindrical tube that was clear and then just dropping dirt at the camera and you really got the sense of the camera moving underground through the through the dirt and the Skotec brothers who were uh, our miniature guys <laughs> who did the miniatures who had also done the abyss and terminator uh they were great to work with and uh, i've worked with them since then too they're just they're they're amazing at doing miniature filmmaking they did a number a number of those shots of the creatures movement uh breaking the surface breaking into the uh base Bert's basement.
9: Yeah, I always thought it was a very effective use of when you're using miniatures versus actually having to have the, the full
5: creature there. Yeah, we, yeah, the full creature, I mean, it was great for scale and, and being able to show characters next to it and stuff, but boy, talk about a, <laughs> a crazy thing to try to actually get this kind of 30-foot scaled worm to crash out of the ground. That was nuts. <laughs>
0: Why do you think
9: it became the phenomenon that it did? I mean, this movie has spawned, what, three sequels and a TV show?
5: <laughs> I think that probably more than anything, it's because of the characters and the, this wacky concept that, um, it's like sh- sharks on land. And so I think it's something that's sort of in our DNA for sort of a, a scary idea <laughs> did they ask you back for the sequels I was I was not really available when tremors 2 was being done um, I was involved though because I, I was a producer on it and and I thought it was great that uh, Brent directed and Steve directed and so they were able to continue the kind of quality and, and feelings of, of the original in terms of concepts and that sort of thing.
9: You were kind of batting a thousand there with your next movie was another one where it had a sequel, but City Slickers, I mean, that was just a phenomenon.
5: I, it was something that I could really relate to because I had had a midlife crisis already. So it was something I really cared a lot about in terms of the story and I ended up just really getting along great with Billy Crystal and production company and the people involved in the film, so it it was an incredible experience it was It was like playing cowboys for a year
9: and that's another one where you've got just this amazing chemistry between your main characters with Crystal and Stern and bruno kirby
5: yeah they they were great together we uh were very very fortunate with the three of them it's It's so much about how you know. It casting is ninety percent of it, and if you get the right cast, and they are in sync with your desires for making the film, and understand it, and can pull it off, I mean you you've got it you've got it made. That's what it's all about, and for the audience, that's what they're seeing the, the how the characters relate to one another, what they what they're like. And if you like to hang out with them, if you want to hang out with the characters in a film, you probably will have a successful film. Did I read right that you were once Gwyneth Paltrow's babysitter? Yes, I was. (laughs) I mean, it was, I was a production assistant on a film that her mother was doing. And one of my responsibilities was um, when Blythe Danner was on the set, I would um, uh, watch Gwyneth, and 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 actually on that same film, Peter Fonda was the uh, leading man, and I drove him to and from work, and so I got to know Blythe and Peter quite well. So years later, about ten years ago, I guess it was now, uh, I was doing a film for CBS, and I thought the two of them would be great for the parts, and and I called them both, and they both said yes, and so I got to direct them, and that was a great thrill after being a PA on my first job, working you know, with them, and then getting to direct them many years later. A few
9: weeks after we're covering Tremors, we're going to be covering
5: Tourist Trap, and I understand that you were AD on that. Yes, I was the first AD, yes. David Schmoller uh, was somebody I got to know way back when. I, Blythe and Peter were the stars of Future World which was the sequel to Westworld so that was my first job being a PA on that job and the producer of Future World Paul Lazarus um, was going to be making uh, Capricorn 1 next with Peter Himes directing and he asked if I would like to work on it since I'd worked on Future World and we got along great and And I said yes, and so they um, promoted me to location manager. So on Capricorn One, I was the location manager. And I met uh, David Schmoller, who was the AFI intern on that film. And shortly thereafter, David had written the script for Tourist Trap and asked me if I wanted to be his AD. So I said, sure. Sure. And that was a great experience. I, I've worked with David many times since then over the years, and and uh, he's a great guy. Very, very talented filmmaker.
9: I want to ask you something, and I'm not trying to be a smartass with this one. I actually, I really liked The Adventures of Pluto, Nash. Why
5: do you think that that one just hit people the wrong way? It was an unfortunate time in a number of ways. I mean, the film had had its problems. It was the beginning of the internet becoming a real force in terms of how perception went on films. And somehow early on, that film was kind of plagued with bad stuff on the internet. And then uh, we were going to do some additional photography, which is so often done on films. I mean it doesn't it shouldn't mean anything, but it it took a um a long time to get Eddie Murphy's schedule to be free for it, so it delayed the film, and then the studio got a little freaked about the amount of the word of mouth, and so they delayed it more, <laughs> thinking that it might get better or something I don't know i it just was just i mean by the time it came out. It had no chance, and uh, the studio really didn't promote it much and they felt that it would not do well and and uh, and they were they got what they predicted. It was kind of a painful experience and i i it was so long in the making for me, I was on it for four years. oh wow, so I mean by the time I got off of that film, if I had just done Lawrence of arabia i had been excited to go back into another film right away. But it was a very grueling experience doing that for four years and with a lot of just negative perception through a lot of it. So when I finished that film, I just wanted to do something very different. And I took a Showtime film, even before it came out, Called Stealing Sinatra about the kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. It was my first thing since doing children's television for television, and I really enjoyed doing it. And it was with William H Macy and David Arquette, and and uh, we had a great time making it. And I I thought maybe maybe I should do something more on television because I really have enjoyed this. And it was it was just a pleasant experience after the whole include a Nash ordeal. And so I did um uh Andy Breckman I had known from uh features that I'd worked on and he had just uh developed Monk and uh that was a series on the air and I I uh did a couple of those and really enjoyed doing that. And I had never I didn't really know what doing television would be like before that I'd heard that, you know, directing television was not that satisfying because the actors all knew their characters so well. and But I found Tony Shalhoub was just incredible to work with and wanted a lot of input and wanted to a freshness that a new director would bring. And so I saw kind of potential in television that was really fun for me because every month you're doing a different tone and a different sh- different kind of show. So so uh, this last several years, I've been doing mostly television and really enjoying that.
9: Yeah, you've been going gangbusters looking at your CV. It's like just so many great shows and stuff that I've watched um, personally, like Reaper and Heroes and all this. And
5: just, yeah, you've
9: been going great guns.
5: Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And it's it's been... A, a fun change for me, because it's just totally different kind of pace and on uh, different kind of energy you need to bring to it and and i've I've uh, enjoyed it a lot.
9: It really feels like so many of the really great directors that we've spoken to over the last few years on the show that are still working today are working in television, that it seems to be, I won't say easier, but it seems to be just kind of the way that it is that, you know, making a feature film is so difficult in the the economics and just getting things financed and packaged and all that, that, I mean, you know, John Dahl, Keith Gordon, so many great filmmakers are doing television work now.
5: Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a great time in television just because there's wonderful writing going on in television and right now features are extremely hard to get off the ground or and and there are some great features being made but for the most part the studios don't are are wanting to only make these huge huge international films and i understand the thinking but it's it's uh it's crazy <laughs> it's not it's not really what i want to do so I, it's been a good timing for me to be able to get into television.
9: Well, I'm glad that you're still working, and what I've seen of what you've done is terrific. I mean, I could go through and list more and more shows that you've done just as I'm looking. I'm like, oh, well, Castle, and <laughs> you know, Witches of East End, and just so many things, Burn Notice, that I've watched. So yeah, it's just amazing stuff.
5: Yeah, it's, been, it's, a, it's a great time for television. There's a lot of diversity, and, and with uh, these... New companies like Netflix and Amazon getting into it. I mean, it's just more and more quality products being made. And as with the movies, the international market is so strong that it's helping to drive the increased product. So there are more opportunities for more kinds of shows. And as different kinds of shows get success, then the networks are willing to try new kinds of things. And, uh, and sort of have to, to compete and stay competitive with the, the forward thinking that's being brought to a lot of the upstarts especially.
10: Welcome back. Thanks to Mr. Underwood for taking the time to talk to us. And we're talking about Tremors in not just, you know, one film and done. No, there were uh, several sequels and direct-to-video sequels. And sometimes when I hear direct-to-video, it kind of scares me, guys. But um, you guys have watched the sequels. What do you think of those sequels?
9: Well, I finally watched the sequels. I know Jonathan's seen them uh, before I did, but I finally sat down and watched Tremors 2, 3, and 4, and some of the television episodes just recently, and I was really impressed. I really liked a lot of the stuff that was going on. I like that each one of the movies kind of is a step in the evolution of the creatures as well as the film series themselves. 2 and 3 are sequels the fourth one is a prequel which is also a nice way to do it i mean we're we're kind of getting used to that as far as you know oh well from Dustal dawn two is going to be a sequel three will be a prequel that kind of stuff but i like the way that they handled it when they did this especially that rather than i mean because we have fred ward in the second movie so that's a nice tie from one to the other and we have this whole running joke of the other guy aka kevin bacon but really it's michael gross unexpectedly this becomes michael gross's
8: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
9: And it's like, I really did not expect that. When I started watching these, I was so excited when Michael Gross came back to the second one. And then when I put on three, it is a Michael Gross film. And four is a Michael Gross film. It's just like, wow, I didn't realize this guy had the chops, you know, because I did grow up with him being, you know, Mr. Keaton and everything. The only other thing that I really remembered him from was Cool as Ice, you know, one of the best movies ever made. But then seeing him in this, it's like, "Oh, wow, th- this guy can really carry a film and he's a very compelling character." And I like that in 4, as a prequel, he's not playing the same Burt Gummer character he's playing in, you know, his his ancestor, and he's a totally different character and I really appreciate seeing how he's able to take what he's done in the the previous films and you know subvert his own character by making himself really kind of a dick but Jonathan what did you think of the sequels did you see them as these were coming out and uh, were you impressed at the time because you probably saw them much closer to the release dates than I did
11: yeah I think I did I mean when the first sequel came out uh, this was before I think it was about 1996 the first uh, sequel came out I should know this for for definite because I I, I've written the book but uh, I think it was 1996 and I was in Canada at the time on holiday and um, I just remember going with my cousins to the local video store when they still had video stores and getting the VHS and seeing it there and being amazed because there was no Internet to really tell me about it. Or at least it was in its infancy at the time, the Internet. And uh, so taking it home, watching it in the basement with my cousins and their friends and just thinking, this is great fun. And it was it was a real surprise. because I'm, I'm with you, Rob, and, and the fact that direct to video sequels don't really appeal Or sometimes they do, but you know they're not really going to be that good. Whereas with Tremors, they really put the effort in. Just to to drop in a little bit more about the history of this film, Tremors 2, originally it was going to be a big screen uh, sequel. That's what Universal wanted. And as I mentioned, they wanted to bring back Reba and bring back Kevin Bacon. They couldn't get them. So Universal said, forget it, we won't do this. And then this new division of Universal Home Entertainment came along. They were making sequels to Darkman, if anyone remembers that. And uh, they thought, let's try out Tremors. They looked at the, the spreadsheets. They saw that it was selling well on video because the first film just didn't do very well at cinema. And they um, thought, right, how can we how can we bring this to the small screen? So they revisited their original script. The original script, the original Tremors to saw Kevin Bacon, so Val and Errol working on their ostrich farm, um, Val had split up from Rhonda. They were called to go to Australia, where the Graboids were were attacking people. And so for the the direct to video one, they decided to just just shrink things down a little bit. Um, Kevin didn't come back, so they brought in um, Chris Garton as his his uh, as Grady, the new sidekick for Errol. And as, and as I said, it's just a great fun film, and uh, and I think when Michael Gross pops up in it, it just it, it kicks into gear even more. You know, it's like it, it kind of there's a few different um, gears almost in this film, and I think Michael Gross really just uh, just takes it up a notch.
9: I mean, I was really honestly surprised when this became kind of the evolution of the graboids we go from the the graboid worm as we know it into these little like walking creatures it's it's almost reminds me of like the chinese vampire films a little bit as far as like each movie reveals a different step or a different thing that they're can do or immune to these kind of things, these guys, they're very attracted to body heat so that it becomes not only noise that we have to worry about, but it's more the body heat kind of stuff. And, you know, so we're, we're putting these characters through more paces, giving them more challenges to do. There's a lot of great stuff in here, a lot of great set pieces. I have to say I was a little turned off at times because this was the first Tremors film to use computer-generated stuff, and I talked about how much I love the special effects in the first film. This CGI was still pretty new at the time. I mean, Jurassic Park was right around this time, and people hadn't really necessarily, you know, this didn't have a Jurassic Park budget by any means, and they just were doing what they could with what they had. There's a couple scenes in here, like when the uh, the um, the shriekers, these guys are called, when they are all kind of piling on each other in order to reach a great height, where it's just like, yeah, this looks really bad, but when you kind of put it into that context of direct-to-DVD direct to, direct to uh, DVD or direct-to-VHS sequel rather than theatrical release. I'm like, okay, I cut this movie a lot of slack when it comes to that.
11: Yeah, well, what happens a lot with, with sequels is that they try and, of course, go bigger with everything because people have seen the original, and what else can you do but make it bigger and, and hopefully better? But with this film, they went smaller, which I think is, is really nice. Uh, with these smaller shriekers and there's a really nice moment into when uh, Earl and Grady are standing uh, outside the, um, I think it's the oil place and they're waiting on this creature to come around the corner and they're looking up and they expect it to be they kind of play on it, that, you know, the writers and the director plays on this, on this idea that's going to be bigger and it comes around the corner it's this little tiny little shrieker thing and, uh, and even the audience are like, oh really? And then of course 50 more of them come around the corner but yeah, the effects are they're not great it comes to the the CGI stuff. They were still trying hard. we were trying to do a mixture of of, uh, of practical and CGI and and, uh, and I did actually the the puppeteers in the book who who had to wear that shaker costume. So there were guys in the heat of the of the, uh, the Californian desert um, suffering so that we could we could see these these shriekers. And then it was kind of let down a little bit by the early cgi effects
9: i have to say i really liked grady in this i really i didn't think that i would like him that much and when they kind of introduce him and it's just like oh we don't have kevin bacon so we're gonna have this other dude and i was expecting almost like a cousin oliver you know kind of an annoying person that would be there and like a hanger on and stuff by the end of the movie I really cared about this character, and I was really glad to see his interaction with Fred Ward and everything, and I thought that, again, there was some good chemistry. It wasn't the same chemistry that he had with Kevin Bacon, of course, but it really worked. I thought that this was good. I would have been absolutely fine had we carried on the franchise with these two guys and Michael Gross and as it was we lost Ward and and um, Grady in the next film but Gross was still there and as the title of the sequel says it was a return to perfection because the second one takes place takes place in is it South America?
11: They say yes it is yeah yeah
9: Takes place in South America. Third one, we go back to the town of Perfection, so we see some more familiar faces. Victor Wong, by this time, I believe he had passed away, so instead we have his niece, who is a great character. Again, we we see um, Mr. Janeiro as as uh, Miguel uh, coming back and everything. And so I was just like, yeah, okay, this is uh, Melvin um, uh, is has returned as well. So we get these familiar faces and everything. There's a lot of. of um, connection going on. And again, there's connection as far as Who's directing these films? You mentioned this earlier, Jonathan, as far as this isn't you know being picked up by a stranger. Two, three, four. These aren't movies that are being done by people that we don't necessarily know. We, we have um, Steve Wilson, one of the co-writers of the first movie, is um, now directing the second movie. Brent Maddock, who had co-written the movies, he's doing the third movie. The fourth one, Wilson takes back again. So it's, it's that same family. And even... Beyond those guys, it was a lot of behind-the-scenes people that are returning. So we have this continuity with all these sequels. It wasn't like somebody else coming in and just being like, oh, I really like the Tremors franchise. I think I'll try my hand at one. Or I got to sign this by the studio, and now I have to make this stupid sequel to a movie I've never seen. You know, if, if there very much was that continuity.
10: Kind of reminds me of when we did Starship Troopers. And the second one sort of disembodied from the from the rest. And then the third one's great because, you know, uh, you have the return of the screenwriter, Ed Neumeyer, who directs it. So it was just such a, what the hell happened, <laughs> number two. And you
11: know. I, I think it could have gone badly wrong because from what I understand, I don't know all the the contractual um, things that went on behind the scenes, but Universal basically said to to Wilson... Wilson and Magic, do you do you want you know, we'd like you to come back and do these, but if you don't, then we will get other people to do them. That's kind of the way it went. So the fact that they did come back, uh is a little bit of a miracle, a minor miracle I think, in the world of films. But they wanted to see through their creations. They were told by their agent at the time, don't don't do sequels, you know, this is not Good, good writers because these guys had done, of course, Short Circuit back in the in the early '80s, and that was a huge film that put them in the front of Variety, and they were they were big writers, and they worked for Spielberg and things. So they could have done other things. The budgets were smaller with these sequels of course, and that is a problem. I mean, that that we're talking about the CGI. That's um. That's kind of where the, some of the problems come with that, because they didn't have much money. They were making these for four million dollars or whatever, and the first one was eleven. So they did well with what they had, and also just that idea of the continuity. They were dropping in in jokes. That that thing in Tremors 2, where they talk about Grady as the other guy, and uh, you know the reference is a lovely scene when Bert is sitting in his uh, in his bunker in his rec room, which is supposedly the one from the first film, and there's this big part of the wall has been reconstructed where the graboid came through and there's a big graboid head stuck on the wall and that's, that's a lovely moment uh, and it's just saying to the audience, yeah, we know we saw the first film,
9: and I was glad that they made reference to the Reba McIntyre character, and that there's a little bit of uh, pathos there with Bert's character that she has, you know, gone to be at her sister's, but for what, like five years or something like
11: that. Yeah, yeah, she's, <laughs> yeah, that moment, yeah, again when he's sitting there and uh, yeah, and um, seeing she's gone, but you no, know, she's she's kind of left him, wasn't she, and 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 uh, she's mentioned a couple of times. In the films and in the TV series, and it's a real shame that Reba didn't come back. I think it would have added something really nice, but I guess her maybe her budget would have been <laughs> would have been too high. So
9: with three, we go back to perfection we've got burt gummer michael gross as our main character but then we do have some good characters again very nice writing coming in as far as it's not just a rehash of the first two films here we have this new character desert jack sawyer who is this guy who is out uh has this whole scam worked up where he's taking people on these um Adventure tours and doing these uh it has these special effects set up and everything so that people think that there are still graboids out in the desert of perfection people haven 't seen a graboid in all these years, and so of course the graboids are going to be coming back but again we change what we expect we don't just have the graboids we don't just have the shriekers but now we have these new graboids that can fly and they are appropriately called ass blasters so they are uh, uh, can uh, emit a uh, a charge from their behind and kind of float it shoots them up into the air and they're able to glide down and everything pretty fearsome and I I have to admit that I was uh, spoilers that when Miguel got eaten I was like oh my god God, you know, the stakes have just been raised. I did not think one of our main characters was going to be in jeopardy. You know, here comes Tony Gennaro back to the franchise and then he gets eaten. It's like, oh, man, okay. <laughs> so, yeah,
11: that, yeah that, is a, that is a surprise. It is a surprising moment. I, I just expected uh, Miguel to get knocked off the side of that the rock and, and get up again. But no, uh, you think you can all, all they've gone to the trouble of bringing him back. And there he's gone. So who's next? That's, that's the question, I suppose.
9: Yeah, it just really throws everything into jeopardy. There, it's like, oh wow, anybody can go now. You know, maybe even Victor Wong's niece can can go. But yeah, it was uh, again nice characters. Good seeing people come back. Very solid story. Um, I have to say, this isn't the one that I'm going to go back to when I go back to the Tremors franchise. I'll probably watch one and two. And then I've actually seen four quite a few times, uh, which is odd to me because I would think by four, the steam has run out of the series, that kind of stuff. But no, I actually really like what they did with four. Which do you like more, Jonathan, three or four? Or is it bad for me to ask you something like that?
11: Uh, <laughs> I prefer four. I think three Three feels a little bit too talky at times and the interesting thing about three although we we talked about this continuity the script was actually written by john welpley so so someone else did come in and write the script from um, from an outline from from Maddick and wilson and also their producer or agent turned producer nancy roberts so things had changed a little bit and i and i think it's maybe the that um, john welpley um, the, that his his um, involvement that that changes it slightly and maybe makes it a little bit um, less of how <laughs> do I say this nicely? Um, it's just yeah, I I do pref- pref- prefer the one and two to to, to three, uh, but Welby does well. You know, he he he. I think he he admitted that he, he didn't have much time to do it, and he he's quite a he likes to have a lot of talk in his scripts, a lot of talking. And um, so anyway, that comes through in there. And then by four, yeah, I'm the same as you. I've watched it quite a few times, obviously for the book I had to. Uh, but the thing is with these films, although I've watched them all many times, you never get bored with it. And, uh, and I guess that's what you get for being a fan. I guess you know fans can, can be forgiving. But as someone who's also trying to be slightly critical, uh, I'm quite glad that um, I, I still enjoy the fourth one. And there's just some really nice moments. I I, I used the words. I think I, I called. Said. I think I said an email to you at one point. It's kind of a sweetness to it, or um, which is kind of odd for a film about killer underground worms. But I think it's between the the characters. There's a real nice sense of how they they're interacting. That these guys are living in rejection, the town of rejection. We should maybe just say that it's set. It's this is the prequel, and it's set in the town of rege- rejection before it becomes perfection, and uh, and everybody is quite dejected. Really, things are not working out for them in this small town, and um, so yeah, it's it's a lovely. I think it's a lovely little film, and again, they didn't have much money, and they did a lot with what they, you know, with what they had.
9: And this was also, you know, as I said, Michael Gross playing Hiram Gummer, and I really like that when he comes into town, he's the guy who owns the silver mine, and by digging in the mine, that's kind of woken up the uh, the graboids. There's this whole idea of them coming from eggs, you know, again with the life cycle and all this. So it's really nice, you know, kind of this continuity. But I have to say, Hiram is he's a jerk, you know, and it's great. There's this one scene with him and uh, this little kid in the town, where where he's like, you know, oh, um, would you like a piece of this, what is it, like ginger cake or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> and he's and he does this whole thing too, even when it comes to the ginger cake, where he's just like, that's what I'll have for lunch. And it's like, oh, you expect us to cook for you? And he's like, well, you've got the ingredients, you know, make me up this cake kind of thing.
11: Doesn't he say something like, to, to the boy, you know, people will take advantage of you if they if they can, or they can, they will, or something like that. And, and you're just like, what? This is a little boy. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's a great moment.
9: Yeah, and yeah, it, they play it really well, and they make this character very unsympathetic right from the get go. So it's nice to see him change, you know, because we've expected, you know, seeing Michael Gross back in this film, you expect certain things from him. You expect him to be this ass kicker, all this kind of stuff. But no, he plays this completely different character who starts off as a jerk and then eventually grows to uh, be a much more likable character. And again, we've got. Really nice chemistry with all the different people in the town. It's a different group of people, of course, because of it being said of, you know, 100 years or whatever before the rest of the series. This is also a film that has Billy Drago in it. He's this kind of hired uh, gunfighter that they bring to town to kill the Graboids. I love Billy Drago, so just seeing him in anything is always appreciated. But I really liked him in this because he is playing this kind of badass, but there's this comic edge to him. So it was really nice to have this. And it's it's not like a an Indiana Jones 3 where you're just like, oh, that's where he got the whip and he got the scar and he got the fear of snakes all within five minutes. This is much more like... It's its own story. It isn't just a story to exist to explain how other things are. And that's one of the things that I really like about the Tremor series overall is that there is no explanation for where do the Graboids come from. I mean, we've seen their life cycle go through these four films, and we know eventually that they come from eggs, but where do the eggs come from? Why are they out here? What is going on with this? And that's one of the things I really like about this whole series, is that these things just exist, and there is no need to explain them or over-explain them. So it was nice to, you know, other than... Hiram Gummer coming to town and him being this predecessor for Burt, and there's the town of rejection being changed into perfection. It's not like, you know, oh, well, this happened, and then this happened. Oh, of course, that's what explains that. You know, you're not getting Django Fett and his young son, Boba. You're getting a, a fully fleshed-out story without having to candor to the rest of the series, which I like a lot. And I haven't
10: seen the sequels, but the way you're explaining it sounds like how I feel about Romero's zombie films, where it's not really explained where they come from, why they're here, they're just there, and you got to deal with them.
11: Yeah, they don't they don't waste time on things like that when they can just get on with a good story. And uh, and something we haven't really touched upon, maybe just me- mentioned in passing, is this idea of. Uh, these films are, are very much family films. I think. Uh, I, I, I think you could watch them with young kids, and they would get. Uh, or certainly, I don't know quite what age you could start them on a Tremors film, but but certainly they they're, they're not just adult films. And and I think that's that's a clever thing to do is to make it so that it's for a kind of family audience, but still grown up enough that um, guys like us can watch them and still enjoy them. It's it's a clever thing.
9: We haven't talked about the television show. In between, I think it's three and four, was the Tremors TV show. And I love the chapter that you devote to that, Jonathan, because I have watched some of the episodes and I really enjoyed what was going on. But to hear kind of the behind the scenes of what was going on with this stuff, and especially this is one of those shows that really suffered from... The network that it was on and the whole idea of showing shows out of order. I mean, everybody who is probably listening to this podcast is familiar with the whole thing of Firefly and how they showed those episodes out of order, so it just didn't necessarily sit with the audience that well. If you're going to go in there and you see this character and you're like, well, who is this guy? I've never really seen him before. And then you get his backstory a few episodes later on, but it's not backstory. It's the actual introduction of the character. It's the same thing. Tremors, they were playing these episodes completely out of order, and it's like, okay, why is Christopher Lloyd here? I don't understand this. Well, had they shown you episode five rather than episode you know, seven or whatever then you would understand what's happening. So they really kind of uh, sci-fi network who have always had problems as far as original programming versus what they're showing. I th- I mean, just last week they were doing like a, a CSI marathon. It's like, why is CSI on the sci-fi network? Anyway, this is yet another show that kind of fell victim to the own, uh, its own network.
11: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that chapter. That was a, a really interesting one to write. And to get people to be honest about it, I, I just when I was approaching people to to speak about working on the shows and the um, sorry the TV series and the films, I didn't quite know how to approach the series because I thought, do people really want to be honest about how how it went behind the scenes? Because I'd already heard from Steve Wilson and Brent Maddock that it hadn't gone too well, but I was amazed that people did want to open up about it, and it's almost a masterclass in. Uh, in how not to make a TV series, I think uh, Tremor is the series. And uh, Brent Maddock admits in the book that they got it wrong from the outset. And um, so, as well as sci-fi not helping when it came to broadcasting it, the actual production of it um, was was not really smooth sailing. Brent Maddock admits that, what well, he kind of said that when when you make a film. You can get in and out of that story in that film in about ninety minutes. You can have your, you know, your start, middle, and end. And, and okay, there'll be plot holes which maybe we'll we'll pick up on as fans. And um, but you might just say, oh well, that's fine. We'll let them off with it. With the TV series, they had this situation where the same residents were under attack every week from something new because they had they had a. I think at the start they were meant to have the graboids in the first episode and then I think the shriekers and the next one, and then the ass blasters. So kind of familiarize the audience with this is tremors that you know, but then again, we're going to change it and add in some new creatures. But when you do that, of course you've got what, 13 episodes, you've kind of got to have 13 different creatures. Why would people live in a town like this? Why would they stay there for, for months on end? Why would they not move away? And that's what I think really causes a problem with the, the logic of, of the series is that, um, you know, as a fan or just as a viewer, you're sort of thinking, "Well, this happened last week. Why are they still here?" Uh, but then, of course, it wasn't helped with, as you say, with uh, sci-fi messing it all up when it came on air. And uh, and and, but the fact that they got people like Christopher Lloyd is is amazing, I think. And and it shows. Uh, I, I couldn't speak to Christopher Lloyd for the book. He didn't uh, get back to me. But I guess that the reason he was in there was partly the fact that the Tremors films were known okay they were direct to video but they, they did sell very well that's something we haven't really talked much about they, these things flew off the shelves when they made them and which is why Universal kept making them because they kept bringing millions of dollars more than they, they cost to make so actors wanted to be part of this because it was something big and the series should have been big I think, I think it should have been bigger anyway uh, and it had more life in it but it got ruined by By the network.
9: As you're talking about why would they live there if there's all these creatures, of course, I'm like, well, you know, why would you stay near the Hellmouth on Buffy? But, okay.
7: (laughs) Yeah.
9: (laughs) All these damn vampires running around. But, yeah, I guess that's just, you have to accept that, uh, you know, we're here, we're perfectionists, we're not
11: moving anywhere. Yeah, and what, what they wanted to do. I, I, I touch on it in the book and, the, and some of the guys involved with it did admit, I mean, some of the episodes they take Bert and, um, and his his sort of sidekick off to other towns to, it's like, almost like not quite the X-Files, but there was talk of making it a bit like um, Bert Gummer, Monster Hunter, and so taking him off to to investigate things in other towns around the country. So they did do that in a couple of episodes, but Sadly, the budget didn't really stretch to doing that every week. And then it doesn't, is it then Tremors? Is it still the Tremors that people are tuning in because they know what happens in the films? So it was just a really, I don't know. I just think it was, they they needed more time to plan it at the outset. They needed more money. And I think sci-fi needed to just give them a bit more leeway and with their ideas. It's a shame. It should, have, As I say, it should have done better.
9: One of the things I like about the Burt Gummer character, again, is that At the end of 3, we're kind of introduced to this uh, one particular Graboid who is sticking around, and they're not going to kill this Graboid because now Graboids are protected creatures. And there's this whole thing now where Gummer, who is this ardent anti-government advocate, now is like his town is kind of saved because of government interference. And there's that whole great tension going on between him and the government and stuff. And with the Graboids, you know, as this third piece of the triangle so it's i really appreciate that and then the the way that the show begins with him and you know uh kind of protecting the town and all this stuff with his little seismographs and all that it's just like well this is kind of nice i really uh like the way that they played this off and i would have liked a i think i would have liked a burke gummer monster hunter kind of a uh a series and everything whether it was part of tremors or had been its own series you know it would have been like almost like supernatural or something so it would have been kind of a nice you know x-files week to week different monster kind of thing and then more burt gummer but we are going to get more burt gummer from what i understand there's going to be a fifth tremors film so jonathan what do you know about that one
11: Tremors 5, yeah, Tremors 5 is, uh, well, it's in the can. Uh, they filmed it in October, September, October last year, 2014. I heard rumours of this. Well, first of all, there have been rumours of Tremors 5 since 2004, when the fourth film came out, Tremors 4 came out. Uh, the, the guys at Universal Home Entertainment said to um, Wilson and Maddox, write us a new script. And they they adapted what they'd planned for Tremors 2, which was going to Australia. This idea of going to Australia, and the plan was to send Bert off to Australia uh, to encounter all these different, all the different kinds of graboids, the shriekers and the ass blasters, and all these different creatures. Uh, which I, I looking, I don't know quite how they expected that to happen because the budget wasn't there for Tremors 2. I don't know how they thought they could get it for Tremors 5. But anyway, they wrote this script. And then Tremors 4 didn't do too well at the box-off, or, or on video rather, on DVD, because the, the bottom fell out of the DVD market. So it kind of lay dormant for many years. So I'd heard rumors, and then when I was speaking to people for the book, I was saying to them, to many of them, what, what, what do you think about a fifth film or a reboot of the uh, of the series, of the franchise? And the, the reboot idea, nobody liked which I'm glad to hear because I think it would be a terrible idea. Um, and But the Tremors 5 idea was quite, uh, people seemed quite like that. So what's happened now is Universal have made this film where Burt Gummer, rather than going to Australia, he goes to South Africa, which I guess is just cheaper. <laughs> the budgets are cheaper for Universal. And from what I can gather, it's not entirely known what happens, but I think what happens is he goes there because there's some sort of new strain of Graboids boys and Ass Blasters have been mentioned in, in the sort of pre-publicity. And he goes there and he meets uh, a tech, technical wizard, a guru-type character played by Jamie Kennedy. And uh, I think, again, this is sort of rumour, but I believe that Burt Gummer, in the the intervening years, in the decades since Tremors 4, he's kind of viewed by survivalists around the world as the best survivalist out there, and he's kind of a cult character now. And I think they tried to make a a documentary about Burt Gummer Monster Hunter. Uh, And then at the same time, there's all this stuff happening with the new Grab Ones. I could be a bit wrong there, as I say, because some of this is rumour. But certainly Michael Gross is back which is great, uh, but the sad news, I think, is that Steve Wilson and Brent Maddock are not back, so the guys that, that made uh, all the films and the TV series have kind of been pushed out of this one, which I'll leave it there. I don't know, don't know what else to say about that one.
9: Well, the two words that really scare me in that whole thing are Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> I, For some reason in my head, when I heard about Tremors 5, I thought I had read Sean William Scott, and I was just like, oh, that would that'll be cool. Sean. I like that guy a lot. And I think that he's got some good chemistry. You know, I really liked, um, the rundown and stuff. And I, I appreciate what that guy can do. I mean, he's, he's a good actor, who's been in a lot of bad movies, but occasionally he pops up in a good one. Jamie Kennedy, I don't know if he's a good actor because just he's been in so many bad movies, and he's just so notorious for some of the movies that he's made. I almost am expecting a call from him after his Heckler documentary, you know, because he's got this thing against people bad-mouthing him in whatever he does, which is just kind of this weird thing.
1: You reviewed my movie, Malibu's Most Wanted. I'm afraid so. It says, I'm getting dumber by the minute, my remaining brain cells have been mercilessly sucked away by the worthless vortex of Malibu's Most Wanted. I won't launch into yet another vitrioperative... That's even too smart. Vitrioperative. Screed about creative bankruptcy in the motion picture industry. Beautiful, beautiful words. Other than to the point out that such a scandalous... Scandalous. What was scandalous about the movie? Uh, essentially that you took a... Uh Five minute sketch idea from the Jamie
5: Kennedy Experiment and uh,
1: stretched it to feature length And I kept wondering Why, who really does find this funny You slammed the movie beautifully
5: I suppose, in that
1: respect I did my job Should sheer boredom or advanced State of masochism compel you to see the film Try this instead Take seven one dollar bills And methodically shred them into pieces Of equal size You'll end up with an expensive bowl of green confetti and an infinitely more productive use of your time. Jesus, why do you hate me? I don't hate you. I hated your film. But it seems like you had to add a little extra bit of cocksuckery.
6: When you're eviscerating a film, you do
5: have to have... uh...
1: Eviscerating a film, so that's your job?
5: No, no, my my, uh,
1: job is to review films, but uh, if there's one I particularly loathe, it can be fun to pull the gloves off as it were do you, have you had sex lately
9: i don't know i am a little scared between the original guys not being there and the addition of jamie kennedy to the mix i'm i'm afraid but i will give it its day in court i will see how it does it's not going to be one of those that i just condone right out of the gate because it's jamie kennedy in a film i will give it a
11: shot Yes, I agree. I mean, yeah, you can't say anything about something until you've seen it. So let's give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, I do. I believe that the, that the script has been changed quite a bit from the original Maddock and Wilson script which you would need to do because it's 10 years later and now we have things, we have um, cell phones and we have Google and uh, drones and all these such of things which we probably didn't have a decade ago. So, you know, you need, it would need to be updated. But I, I mean, my concern, again, okay, I've not seen it. I, my concern, though, is that that Tremors tone um, might not be there. I worry that it's, it's a film called Tremors rather than a Tremors film. But I hope I'm proved wrong.
9: So speaking of Steve Wilson, let's go ahead and and take another break, play an interview with the co-writer of Tremors and the director of Tremors 2 and 4, Mr. Steve Wilson, and we'll play that right after these important messages.
8: You can make this Valentine's Day one that you'll both never forget with this amazing offer from adamandeve.com. Through Valentine's Day, you'll receive 50% off just about any item. Just go to adamandeve.com and you'll find over 18,000 adult entertainment products, including toys, lingerie, and a seemingly endless selection of adult DVDs. And there's more. With every order, you'll receive our romance kit free. Our romance kit includes a toy for him a special massager for her, and a little something we know you'll both enjoy, plus a free adult DVD to put you in the mood. And that's not all. Oh no, we'll also throw in a free shipping on your entire order. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special Valentine's offer. Get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, and free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. B O O T H. That's Booth at adamandeve.com.
1: Yeah, I have no idea what we should do for a promo. Cinema Sonique. It's cold for Christmas. is expensive. Cinema Sonique because no one else will listen to us. Cinema Sonique because I can't actually do anything with my degree. Insert witty banter here. Cynic related pun. Cinema Sonique. Silently
2: judging you. New episodes released on Fridays.
1: You can find us by going to cinemasonique.wordpress.com. That's cinema, y-n-i-qu-u-e.wordpress.com Or by typing cinemasonique into your handy search bar.
3: Are you tired of the same old stuff Hollywood puts out week after week? You know, all those less than appealing remakes? Those films with over-the-top CG and no storyline? Well, we don't have to take it anymore thanks to the 2015 B-Movie Celebration.
6: Polyscope Media presents the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration. In 2015, we're going to go back in time, back to 1985 to be exact. The 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration will feature the following films from this time period. Fright Night Malibu Express
3: The Last Dragon
6: Invasion USA
3: Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins
6: Return of the Living Dead. Trencers. Reanimator.
3: Morons from Space. The Stuff. Life Force. DEF CON 4. Damnation Alley. Better Off Dead. Godzilla 1985. Along with those 80s classics, we're going to showcase The Blob from 1958 and Death Race 2000 from 1975.
6: So pack those bags, recharge that flux capacitor, and join us for the 9th Annual B Movie Celebration on August 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2015 at the Brown County Playhouse in Nashville, Indiana.
3: For updated information on this event, bookmark the BeeMovieCelebration.com website using your favorite browser, and we promise to have you home, back in time.
5: Titles mentioned in this promo are subject to change without notice.
3: The Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast is an official sponsor of the ninth annual B Movie Celebration.
5: Yeah.
10: Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show,
5: WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops us ragging on bad movies,
9: whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, party, cinema-related stuff.
4: Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies, every Tuesday.
6: How
9: did you get in the business?
6: I was always making movies with an eight millimeter camera, starting when I was about twelve. And uh, the family, my folks, were very supportive and made a big deal about each two and a half minute reel that came back from Kodak. It was a two week process to get it processed to you get you two and a half minutes of silent film. And uh, then I went off to college, and my dad came up the first couple of weeks of college, and I was signed up for pre psych, and he said why did you do that? And I said, well, I don't know. You're a psychologist and I I got to get a job. And he said, you've been making movies since you were 12 years old. So he went to my advisor and changed all my classes to film and television classes. And I had never considered it until that moment. So that's what sent me down the road. And then I went into the army and uh, I was extremely lucky to be kept stateside during the Vietnam, the waning years of the Vietnam War, and uh, and ended up making movies in the Army as well. And, so, and then my commanding officer was a USC grad, so he encouraged me to go to USC for graduate school, and I did that, and the rest was somewhat history. <laughs> then a mere 10 years after that, I broke into the business. <laughs> How did you and Brent Meddock meet? We met at USC.
9: And when did you, how did you decide to start writing together? It's always
6: been a, you know, an, a good idea to, to, if you think you're a writer, to write on spec, as they say. And we wrote three or four spec scripts together. I think with Brent and not with Brent, I wrote seven, I think. I'd have to look back on my records and I keep telling the story. I don't know if the number is growing or not. And of course, they didn't sell. We couldn't get an agent. Nothing happened with any of them. And, uh, but Brent and I, got hired by another USC classmate, uh, Ron Underwood, who went on eventually to the Red He, unlike us, went out and immediately got work in the short film business. It was a a fairly booming business back then. Uh, I don't know uh, how old you are, if you're old enough to remember rolling 16mm projectors into the classroom and streaming movies, but that's what we made. And we made 16-millimeter films, and Ron hired us to do various things, write write, and direct those films. And they were (laughs) very dry subject matter. How to look up a word in the dictionary. In between times, Brent and I would write these spec scripts in hopes of of selling something. And we wrote, uh, one of them was Short Circuit. I had told Brent, that's the last one I'm going to do, which I believed at the time. And that was the one, ironically, that did break through.
9: What were the circumstances as far
6: as short circuit getting picked up? It was classic stuff. It's always a story like this in in my experience. Brent was taking a work, a write screenwriting workshop at at UCLA. And we had both graduated from USC by this time because we had been working in the short film business, like I say, for about 10 years. And he said, gosh, I, I can't stand to write two screenplays. Can I use our spec screenplay that we're writing now about a robot in the class? I said, sure, I don't care. And then the, the instructor in that class had people read things aloud. She believed in this. And it's funny, we, the only time we've ever done it is then. And for the rest of my career, I had said, it would be so cool to read a script aloud before we finish the last draft. If you learn so much, but we had never done it again. And Short Circuit was read aloud in class by the other class members. And I went for that night. Brent and I made a ton of notes. You could, it was just so funny. You read it aloud, you can... Many things are obvious that don't work the minute you do that. It's a great idea. <laughs> but in that class was the friend of the son of David Foster, big time producer. And he knew through his friend that Foster was looking for any script with a robot in it. Because robots had outsold cabbage patch dolls the three of this previous Christmas. These are the things that really control your life. The friend gave it to the son. Son gave it to the dad. And I'm walking around in a in a grocery store a week or so later. And this is way before cell phones and everything. My my then wife had a box boy track me down in the grocery store and say, "You you need to go to MGM Studios right now."
9: So that kind of opened up the door for you for a lot of different things. Oh yeah,
6: Star Circuit was the big breakthrough. Yeah, it was a big high-profile sale. It was on the cover, of the front page of Variety, and you know, <laughs> we will it, it, because the, the wires got crossed early on. That story is still repeated that we were UCLA students when we sold the thing, and, uh, and not too long ago, the LA Times did a rehash of something related to Short Circuit and repeated that story, which is still in their archives, incorrect. Um, uh, yeah, but that was a big breakthrough because it was it was a high profile sale, and then and then it it went into production faster than anything else ever in the history of our careers. John Badham came on very quickly. Movie from the time I got that phone call in the grocery store to the time we were in production was something like three months. It was insane. Yeah. and the movie was high profile and it was number one, you know, for a couple of weeks and all that stuff. So yeah, so the next call was from Steven Spielberg's office.
9: How close was the short circuit that we saw in theaters compared to what you and Brent had written?
6: The plot is exactly the same. The tone of what we wrote was, we felt very much and, and still believe that, that it, you should, you know, if you have a wacky element like a, a talking robot who behaves like a little boy, uh, uh, everybody else should be playing straight. And Adam did not agree with that, so the tone is different, you know, and he hired all the police academy people, Steve Gutenberg and um, the fellow that plays with Purity Boss and Austin Pendleton uh, to play very broad, so that drove us crazy that he had people playing so broad, you know, slapping themselves in the forehead and so forth. Uh, and then the other big thing that is sad <laughs> is that he also hired a comedy writer to punch it up, because he felt it was a broad comedy, and he was going to do it that way. He hired a comedy writer to so punch it up. And that guy, in concert with Fisher Stevens, I, I, you know, it's funny. I've had an opportunity to ask John Batam many times, and I never have gotten this story straight. I may be getting this wrong, but some combination of the writer Badham and Fisher Stevens doing a wacky Indian character was where the Indian character Ben came from. Our Ben was not that wacky character. He stands out so much in the movie and he was a tribute to to Fisher Stevens who <laughs> couldn't be less Indian in real life. He was a brilliant actor, Fisher. And uh, uh anyway, yeah, so that was that was not something we invented. So so the character of Ben was new and, and like I say, the, the sort of slapstick tone was new. But the story was absolutely the story we wrote, you know, and, and John you know, he was very very solid and he's a good director and a good producer. You know, he brought this thing in on budget and, he comes out of television, so he knows how to run gun and shoot and get things done. It was, it was a big budget to us. I don't remember what the budget was, but you know, in, by today's standards, it was not a big budget movie.
9: When it came to the sequel, were you guys doing more of a sequel to your script or a sequel to what ended up being Short Circuit the movie?
6: No, Short Circuit the movie. I mean, like I say, everything in the script except Ben is our story. It's really tone. The tone is different. So we sat down with the producer again, David Foster, and, and John, Adam, and, and said, you know, what, what should happen? What should happen? Foster, being a very urban guy, oh, No-5's got to go to New York. No-5's got to go to New York. <laughs> well, okay. I, I, guess, I guess he does. And uh, so we, we developed a story around that idea. And then we, Brent and I always, just as we did with the Trimmers movies, we've always tried to make everything consistent. You know, we, I hate sequels where everything falls apart and all the rules set up in the original movie are abandoned for some other thing. We really believe in, in being true to what you invented. So, uh, you know, we tried to figure out, well, what would Ben be doing? He and, Pro- he and Newton would have both lost their jobs because the place would have gone under with all the value of the robot escaping. And so that's how we came up with Ben on the streets of New York selling mini, mini number five and, you know, the goofy plot that is in there. That movie, too, got a little goofier than we, than we hoped. We were new, you know, we, we, we didn't, didn't realize how little power writers had at that point. <laughs> we got very incensed about every little change they made. You know. Later we learned, you're lucky if they shoot anything, you write.
9: What have been some of your experiences as far as uh, some of the things that you've written that have gotten changed or have kind of gone out of control
6: when it comes to that? Oh, well, the WoW OS is the biggest one. I, I'm still so astonished that we got screen play, screenplay credit on that because it's very, other than the big mechanical spider, there's virtually nothing left of our draft of the script. There were nine writers, I was told. I don't know if that's a truly accurate number. There were many, I know there were many, that followed us as as the movie un, sort of unraveled, and, and then they began doing audience screenings and realized that, and Barry Sonnenfeld, I, I, I'm i supposing this, but I, but I did, I did hear that The big note that came back in the screenings was, hey, what's wrong with this movie? Will Smith isn't funny. And of course, we cast him as the straight character. We had written something that was, we tried, again, we tried to be really, really true to the series. First of all, I loved the show. I mean, I'm old enough that I knew the show. Second of all, we got in touch with the fan club that still existed in that time. They were publishing mimeographed fanzines about the show. This is way before the internet. So we wrote something that had all kinds of in-jokes from the show and very didn't care about any of that stuff, and we didn't know the show, didn't care about the show. And, and then John Peters, when he got involved, big heavyweight, one Brothers producer, <laughs> even, there was even less interest in doing it, than you had to do, you know, people buy and sell titles, and they do it even more now. It's just, they're just buying and selling titles, that's all they care about. That one was, it was very wacky, we were, we were astonished when we finally saw the movie, we said, my god, why did they even give us this? We shared credit with, uh, who the other people? The Rabbit guy, somebody, somebody like that. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've watched that one. I have to admit, I've only seen it once. Oh, yeah, I, I've only seen it twice. <laughs> but yeah, there were many other writers in that that weren't credited. You know, you have to write, you have to rewrite significantly for the writers bill to assign you credit. I guess because it was our original story, that's probably why they tend kind to of defend the first writer unless unless somebody comes in and makes such significant changes that. Uh, because the writers' guild, of course, you don't know, have total control over who gets credit. Nobody else can, nobody else can say. The producers can say whatever they want, but the writers' guild it to in the size. How did Tremors come about? Well, it came about because of, of people taking our material and changing it and, <laughs> and messing it up. Uh, we were, we had written several things, some, uh, some produced and some not produced at, at Amblin. We worked for about a year for Steven Spielberg, which was a delightful period. But we were going, we'd go to our agent periodically and we said, God, this is just amazing to us. Because we had spent, like I say, about 10 years in the short film market doing everything. I mean, literally doing everything. We would, we would shoot and run camera set lights, edit, cut sound, record sound. We did everything on those little movies. They were made for like $50,000 and they were, you know, 30 minutes long. But we were used to doing everything in the, in a production and we were astonished when, directors would say, no, we don't want you on the set. Why would you want to be on the set? (laughs) So we we went to our agent, uh, uh, who was our agent for this entire period, 20-some years, and said, gosh, you know, how do we get control? She said, well, you're talking about producing. You're not talking about writing. You guys need to write something on spec again and so that you totally control it. Don't sell it without you guys attached to produce and or direct. So then she said, what ideas do you have? So we went into our little... File folder full of fragments of ideas, and in there was was this idea that at the time was called Land Shark, and we described it to her. She said, "That's weird, you know. You could do that." Then we sat down with Ron Underwood because our goal. Ron Underwood had been attached originally to direct Short Circuit, but had he had been doing like us all these short films, and he'd done many many short films, but that's all he had as a track record. So the short films that nobody had ever heard of except kids in school. And uh, so we told uh, our agent Nancy. We said, "We well, would like Ron to direct this thing because we feel we owe him." He was a to do short and he backed out himself. He's a much better business man than we are, by the way. <laughs> and and Ron uh, and said, "Guys, this is not going to work. Nobody is going to be interested in me directing it." As soon as there was interest in, you know, from David Foster and people to buy it, Ron just said, "Okay, I'm not. I'm not going to be involved." And he said, yeah, "Why?" He said, because you'll never sell it with me at that. He was right. So he said, all right, well, now we're heavyweight writer guys, and we can bring on whoever we want, we hope. And so we sat down with Ron. We worked out a story, uh, uh, at least the bare bones of the story with Ron, and then Brent and I sat down and wrote how many drafts it was, six or seven drafts, to get everything the way we wanted it and to make it fit a hopefully low-budget construct. You know. <laughs> Part of the reason for choosing underground monsters was that our theory was you wouldn't see them very much. <laughs> and therefore you would have less special effects. And it was remarkably hard to sell even back then. And I'm sure you couldn't sell it in today's Hollywood. At least not as a studio picture. Maybe as an independent. Today's Hollywood, because it was a new idea, you know, they only make movies that are based on something else. That's been a big problem for me and Brent currently. First we fixed it. All over town, because we had, you know, we had an agent and we had a profile so we could go to the studio heads and pitch ideas, and we did. They didn't didn't buy it. And then we wrote a 25 page treatment, and we went all over town, and they didn't buy it. So then we wrote the screenplay itself. (laughs) And, uh, and and then Nancy very carefully took it around town to the people she knew were sort of avant-garde studio executives who knew movies. And the fella that she targeted, was Jim Jacks, who just just sadly passed away last year. Um, He was an old-school studio executive, a guy who found material, brought it to the studio, and demanded that they make it. This is completely the opposite of the way the business works now. The marketing department finds material like the name, like the game Battleship, (laughs) and brings it to the studio and says, 317 million people know the name Battleship. You should make this movie. So they do. But uh, Jim went in and fought for this I movie. Mean, Universal was the only place that even was interested in it. <laughs> then they were very worried about Ron, who had never directed a feature. And that's when Nancy got Gail Ann Hurd involved, uh, which is a really bold stroke on her. But Nancy was kind of the behind the scenes producer of this whole thing because she, she got Gail Ann Hurd involved and Gail Ann looked at Ron's short film, and Gail Ann, being a real filmmaker, knew immediately that this guy knew what he was doing. So she went to Universal and said, don't worry about this guy. He can direct your movies. So we got that out of the way. Those are many of the steps that they took to get Trimmers off the ground.
9: What were some of the objections that they had when you were trying to sell
6: this? Disney turned it down because they said they don't like dust. we think there's a lot of dust in this movie, and we don't like that. That's, <laughs> that's a true thing. That is a true thing. And I, I don't remember what the other rejections were. It was just too weird. I mean, it was, you know... Now they talk about the tremor's tone. If I, if I have a claim to anything in Hollywood, it's funny that we still occasionally get the call. We need we need the tremor's tone, the odd mix of humor and, and horror. And I don't know where, where that comes from, except that I tend to be sort of sci-fi, and my partner tends to be sort of comedy. At the first, the, the earlier drafts of the script had more comedy in them, but we found in rereading and reading and handing it around, it, it didn't work. So we began taking comedy out of it and leaving only the comedy that came out of the situation where someone would really did really would say what they said. They wouldn't crack a joke. Primarily, there were not so much objections as people just didn't get it. I don't get what this is. Some of the times I'm laughing, and some of the times it, it seems like it's scary. So I just don't understand it. And you know, thankfully, Jim Jack, he knew everything about the history of film, and this guy was encyclopedic guy. going to say there's no one like him in the studio now. There's no one. Uh, Jim was the one who he, he convinced the, the president you know of the studio. Look, 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 it's a good idea, it's a good idea. This is weird. You've never seen it. you've never seen anything like this. <laughs> That's the thing you can't say about a movie now if you want to pitch it to the studio. You can't say you've never seen anything like this People they say, Well why not that? <laughs> Where's the built in? Exactly. So uh so Jim was great, Galen was great. And the studio guys were, were smart guys, you know, Casey Silver and uh, and Tom Pollock at that time. You know they they took the gamble and they really tried to make it work. And they supported us. You know they gave us a low budget. You know and they gave us rules. That's fine. The only t- time we had to fight uh, was for the sinking car scene. We had to cut that out in order to hit our budget. And then later in the production, when they were seeing dailies and they were seeing it was working and they were seeing how good the calf was, and they were seeing that Ron knew what he was doing, I went back to Jim Jackson and I said, Jim, we've got to do the sinking car. You know you've never seen anything like this car sinking into the dry dirt. And of course Jim did know that and he said, Oh God, give me a budget. Okay. And he okayed it. We shot and that was the very last thing we shot.
9: So 1990 was a pretty big year for you
6: between having Tremors in theaters and Ghost Dad at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Ghost Dad was a complete surprise. We had written that years before at Amblin for Steven Spielberg. And yes. it was supposed to star Steve Martin. And it was rolling down the tracks. And we thought, my God, this was supposed to be the first thing that was going to come out after short circuit. It was rolling along. And then we sent in a new draft of the script based on the notes from Spielberg and from the, from the young director and everybody that was working on it. And he heard nothing at all. We said, oh my God, we must have really screwed up that draft. What had actually happened was that Spielberg was was really interested in, in supporting film schools and everything. And this young fella, he had just kind of picked this fella based on one of his student films and said, boom, I'm going to make you the director. And uh, unfortunately, the story I got years later, I didn't get this story at the time. They just told us he was not making the movie. <laughs> okay apparently he, he was, because he'd been tapped and given all of this power, he wasn't handling it very well. That's a rough version of the story I got. And I guess, pissed people off. not exactly sure what happened. As I say, I don't really know other than one day they were making the movie and they were shooting Tesla's with Steve, Steve Martin in, at ILM and the next day they weren't. So then it sat on a shelf for years and years and when it got made, we didn't even know. that We didn't know that Bill Cosby and Sidney Poitier had picked it up. We didn't know anything. And... I saw it in the trade. Literally, I read it in Variety, and I called our agent, and I said, Nancy, is that our ghost dad that's in production? She said, well, let me find out. <laughs> and that movie, uh, of course, <laughs> is the, uh, the, the, the... What do I want to say? This? It's not a backhanded compliment. It's just like, I guess it's a, it's sort of a crazy low point. Speaking of movies that you know, there was nothing left of a script, because it had been rewritten several times, and then was rewritten again, I guess, when Cosby and Forty picked it up, so uh, my par- my partner has never seen it, and I have seen it a couple of times. Did I read that it was once called Ghost Kid instead of Ghost Dad? You did read that. That is correct. When when Spielberg brought the story to us, it was it had it was a rewrite. It was written by another writer, and uh, uh it was called Ghost Kid, and it was grim in the extreme. You had a kid die at the beginning of the movie <laughs> and then show up back in the house, and uh, so we, we wrangled it and wrangled it. We, could, we, we couldn't, it wasn't obvious to us immediately what was wrong. We would pitch ideas to Spielberg, and we'd come back with more ideas, and, oh, I don't know, I don't know, and and, uh, and then one day my partner stood up and said, you know what's wrong? He said, it's a kid, it's inherently horrible. <laughs> he said, I think we should call it Ghost Dad. And he said this just off the top of his head, and Spielberg stood up at that moment in the meeting, and he said, I really support that idea. Do that, and he walked up.
9: Yeah, it sounds almost like Casper because I remember when they finally made the movie version of Casper, that was a dead
6: kid, and it was like this is horrible. Oh god! Yeah, it is. It is funny when when you when you make a fundamental error right at the upfront and you don't realize it. You know, I mean, I can't say we've never done it. We probably have, but certainly we have scripts that, that we never sold that we just we go, what's wrong with this script? I don't get it.
9: When it came to the uh, Tremor sequel, so you actually got to kind of do your own philosophy again as far as keeping the story and keeping that consistency and stuff. And it was nice that it felt like it was kind of kept in the family with, uh, you know, now kind of turning the directing reins over to you. Yep. What was it
6: like directing your first feature? Oh God, it was such a blast. It was such a blast. Right? And I never had that as a goal. Once I realized that I could make it as a writer, pri- prior to being a writer, I was an animator. I didn't mention this, but uh, not a cell animator, but a stop motion animator. And uh, that's a lot of what I did in the educational films is I did these little brief animated sequences in them that set our films apart and even sell better and that worked for all of us. But uh, that's what I had done a lot of even at the tip, was animation. So then I uh, I fell into writing some of the short films and from there I began writing the specs, blah, blah, blah. But I never had the slightest desire to be in control of a crew and trying to tell them what to do. It never crossed my mind. The reason it happened was Ron, Ron is directing Trimmers, right? And we have, and most movies have, what's called a second unit. You're familiar with it. And the second unit picks up a lot of stuff that the main unit does not have time to get. And Ron said, well, that's what you've done on all of our films. Speaking of the short film, he said, you've always filled in these little bits and pieces for me. Why don't you direct second unit? And I'm like, "Oh, dude, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, And then, again, because we had such wonderful support from Universal... When they began to see that the second unit needed a bigger crew and needed its own effects crew, and this, we had a, uh, um, you know, they stepped in and said, you know what, we're going to make the second unit bigger. They also saw that this would help bring the picture in on budget. So suddenly, I was in charge of a big crew. I was, I thought it was going to be me and a cameraman, you know, and two guys, you know, lighting firecrackers or something. And uh, uh anyway, and it ended up me, you know, and like a hundred people some days, you know, digging holes under the bulldozer and making it sink into the ground and all of this kind of stuff. All these bits and pieces. So I I just loved it. I, I, uh, after I got over my fear, because I was just terrified going into it. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I am naturally kind of a hermit person. I'm an animator and a writer. I do everything alone in a room. Uh, but it worked out really well and I had tremendous support from the crew and from Universal. And so... When Universal, all these years later, decides to make Tremors Two, and Ron was not available because his career was booming, you know, he was off doing big features. He certainly wasn't going to do a DVD movie at that point in his career. So um, Universal <laughs> was happy to keep it in the family, and they turned around and said, "What about you?" And I'm like, "Yes, I'm there." And the same thing happened with Brent for Tremors Three, and I said, okay. Now it's turn. <laughs> And again, we had done all this stuff. It's not like we didn't know what we were doing it. We had written, directed, and done everything else on all these short movies. So it wasn't as though we had no experience. It was it's certainly different running, you know, running a big crew and, and and being responsible for all of this money and everything. But yeah, it was an absolute blast. And yes, it stayed completely in the family. They were all done at Tremors Two, Three, and Four were all done at Stampede with us writing or co-writing. Sometimes we would, I, I or in cases of Three and Four, rewrote the story. Fairly detailed story, and then we brought in people to finish the writing so that we could see in pre-production and, and working on the movie. Because yeah, it's just directing is, is a total rush. It's like being a mini king for twenty three days. What uh, involvement did you have with the television show? Oh, we wrote and produced that too. <laughs> Universal did a funny thing. I, I, I will still never understand these corporate decisions. They wanted the show and Tremors four at the same time. And we said, okay, well, you want Bird, Michael Gross, to be in both things. Yes? Yes, we do. We said, well, you realize that he can't be in a TV show and be in a movie at the same time. Not even the most crazy people ever tried this. So they said, well, the, the, the compromise was he had to be out of the last three episodes of the series and move over. So I left the series and Michael left the series in, during the shooting and writing the last three or four episodes and moved on to pre-production of Primus Floor. And shooting for us for the Uh but prior to that, Sci Fi had come to us. We were astonished because we had actually developed the series based on Tremors years before and pitched it all over town and hadn't sold it. And uh with, with universal support. And that hadn't sold, and then we were astonished and Sci Fi came to us and said, Would you guys like to do the Tremor series? And we said, Why yes we would So yeah, we jumped right into it and dragged out some of the old ideas some of the old ideas from the original series were brought back to life. Some of the monsters from the original were brought back to life. And, uh, um, and then, yes, and it was a very heady time. By, and television is hard. It is, it's as hard as everybody says it is. And it was our first experience. And I, you know, I can't say we, we, we managed it as well as we could have. Uh, we, our, from our perspective, it was all about getting the scripts right. Because we had a staff of people working very hard, you know, but trimmers is a hard thing to do. And even though these were seasoned TV people who came in to do it, their first drafts of everything, from our perspective, were just all wrong. The tone was wrong, the dialogue was wrong. That's all wrong, the action was wrong. So we're drastically, frantically rewriting stuff, trying to get it ready for the cameras. But then, you know, by the middle of that period, they were getting it. You know, they were understanding how Tremors worked, and that was that was great. Then, boy, some of them just turned into some killer scripts for the, for the end. Some of the best shows were done sort of in the middle toward the end. And then, according to sci fi, we were within one ratings point of getting picked up for our second season. I don't know if that was a nice way of telling us you're not getting picked up or what. But.
9: Nice try, boys. Yeah. yeah, right. I really like how the series kind of changed from the uh, Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward characters really into kind of the Michael Gross story and just his consistency and the way that his character evolves throughout the the series of films, the television series. I mean, it, and then the really, I think it was a great decision, the whole idea of doing the prequel and seeing kind of a different side of Michael Gross and what he could do. <laughs>
6: I'm glad you like that. It, this, the fans were very split on Tremors 4. Some of them do not like it at all. But yes, I, it was great fun. Of course, that was because, the only reason Tremors 4 is a Western is because Universal told us that Tremors 3 was absolutely, definitely, certainly the last Tremor. The trilogy was going to be all the DVD market could handle. So we said, God, all right. Well, if that's the thing, we're going to wrap up the Tremors life cycle. We're going to finish it all up and explain the whole thing. <laughs> and almost, I, it wasn't that long after Tremors 3 came out that they turned around and said, you know what? It really did well. We have to have Tremors 4. And we said, guys, you know, you, you, you made us write it into a hole. Now we don't have anywhere to go. And I said offhandedly to, the chief executive there in the in the director video division, I said, I mean, I really have to do something extreme like, you know, a western, a prequel. And she said, sure. I ran back to Stampede, Stampede offices, and I said, hey guys, let's do our western filmers. And I got in touch with Michael. And I said, this is crazy, but if you don't come back and be Bird, would you like to do something else? Of course, he's an actor. So he'd love to do something else. Yeah,
9: and I just love pretty much what a jerk he is at the beginning of the story, <laughs> and the way that you take him through, and help uh, see him change throughout the entire
6: thing, which is great. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's always nice to hear. Because that was the goal. That's what we were trying to do. And Michael and I had a ball, even though we knew we were taking a gamble, you know, putting out a Tremors without Bert. Bert is far and away the favorite character. If, if Kevin had been willing to come back and do Tremors 2, which he was not, uh, uh, it would have changed a lot of things. But because he was not, and because only Fred came back, and, and Michael was willing to come back, we had to we had to make it fit that world, and again, we don't like to cheat. We weren't going to cast somebody as Val and say, "Oh, well, this is this is Val, people." Because I, I even hated that as a kid. You know, and they would, watching a TV show and suddenly some other character uh, actor would be playing this character, and no, it doesn't work. So, uh, yeah, part of this was driven by those things. You know, Reba wouldn't come back, and Kevin wouldn't come back, and uh, so we had to write write in a divorce for Michael because we were determined to make the world fit from movie to movie to movie and make everything linked together. Now, were you guys involved at all with uh, Tremors 5? We were not. Much to our bafflement, Universal uh, offered us an executive producing position in the hopes that we would rewrite our script. It was based on our script because we wrote Tremors 5 years ago. Because At that point, when Tremors 4 was being done, they wanted Tremors 5 immediately. Uh, they And then the bottom fell out of the DVD market. I don't know if you were aware of this, but suddenly, and and I don't know that anyone has ever come up with a good explanation for this, suddenly, everybody stopped buying DVDs. So, Termas uh, 4, or uh, 5, instantly went onto Universal's shelf and for the, whatever it has been, 10 years, they said, um, no, no, we're never going to make it, we're never going to make it. And that's what I've been putting on the website all these years is no, they're never going to make it. Anyway, they called us up and they said, hey, we want you to be executive producer, but and we want you to rewrite your script that you wrote 10 years ago, but we don't want you to be involved in the production in any way whatsoever. <laughs> oh, wow. We said, uh, and there was no explanation given for this. These are the same people that we've been dealing with all these years. And he said, well, that doesn't seem like much fun to us. The reason we did Tremors you know, 25 years ago was to be in creative control of it. So good luck with it. And uh, they hired someone else to rewrite it and it was shot in South Africa and I guess it's coming out in October. Next year, I think, of 2016, I believe. I believe that's the last thing I saw. I'm I'm not actively <laughs> pursuing information about it because it was pretty painful. It was a it was a really it was a total shock to us. I, I I still don't know why they did that.
9: Which is worse for a writer? See, having that happen where you get your characters taken away from you, or writing something and seeing it change so much when it comes to the to the screen?
6: <laughs> They're about equivalent, I think. About the same kind of horror. In the case of Tremors, it's hard just because we were so involved in every aspect of it, and we really, you know, it was great fun to to take all of the stuff and and make keep it consistent. Uh, uh, it's well, yeah, to lose to lose control of those characters that That's probably worse than like the Wild Wild West. You know, it's worse than Ghost Dad <laughs> because you know it's, it's years later and and you you wrote it and you handed it in and then. They moved on to somebody else and every writer that comes on has different ideas and every director that comes on has different ideas. So it's, yeah, lo- losing, losing the characters that we created and the world we created and having it just be taken off to be changed willy-nilly. Pretty, pretty tough. Did I hear that there was a, going to be a remake of Short Circuit? There was supposed to be and we actually, we wrote a draft of it. Uh, the, David Foster has always been a huge fan and, uh, he, uh, he, Contacted the people who hold the rights to Short Circuit, which is not a studio; it is not owned by a studio, oddly enough. And um, and he, he talked to us about about uh, either doing another sequel or or no, well, he talked to us about doing another sequel. So then we came up with a bunch of different sequel ideas, and we took those around town with David and pitched them. And what happened was Dimension Films said, "Well, we're not really interested in a sequel. We'd rather do a remake." So we said, well, we can consider that. And then it was interesting. And Brent and I sat down then and said, gee, interesting. Try to, try to update that story. A story that took place when there were no cell phones and no computers and uh, have this robot completely isolated and somehow he's able to move around the world with nobody noticing him. And, uh, it was a fun challenge. And we, what, but we disagreed with Dimension on some fundamental things. And they insisted that we write a draft with a little kid in it so we did. Mm. They hated it, and we hated it. And so then we wrote on spec what we thought the movie really should be, and they didn't like that either. And that's the last I've heard several years ago. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not, that's not the last I've heard. I have heard that n- several other writers and several other directors have been attached to it off and on. And I assume it's in the classic state of what Hollywood calls development hell. Too many, you know, it, there's, nobody has a real handle on how to bring it, you know, to update it. Everybody has their own idea about what it means. You know, Dimension was absolutely rabid about having a kid in it. I don't I, I don't understand this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I go, okay, you, you can't you know, if you have number five on your poster, you cannot keep kids out of your theater. There's no way. <laughs> what you need to worry about is getting teenagers into your theater. Our poster was a really sexy girl in number five. <laughs> and that was our script too. We changed, we updated the uh, the female character and made her a really wild and wacky punk rocker. You know?
9: I keep thinking of Short Circuit these days because of uh, that new film by Neil Blomkamp oh, that uh,
6: Chappie. Yeah, it looks so much like Short Circuit. It's so funny. There's actually a moment I think where he says, I'm <laughs> yeah, "I am alive."
9: Yeah, I would not be surprised if there's uh, a lot of
6: internet articles being written uh, comparing the two when the, yep. <laughs> when it comes out. Yeah, you know, that would that would be nice. That would be that would be a nice little a thing for us uh, from all those years later. Yeah, because I, I have no idea what the remake... In fact, I, I would think Chappie may may damage the possibility of getting a remake off the ground now. I don't know. Because he's so much more, you know, Chappie's so... uh uh He's so humanoid. Of course, that was something we really... That was something we lobbied strongly for John Badham to do. Coming out of animation, I had always said, you know, the robot really should not look like a human. Please don't have it be in a guy in a tinfoil suit. John, John got, got so on board with that. It was John who said, okay, I want a real robot on treads on my set. And I said, no, oh, no, John, no, no, it can be animated. It can be animated. No, I want a real robot on my set. <laughs> By golly, that's what the effect size built.
9: Did I read that you were involved with a um, feature film version of TJ Hooker? Yes. <laughs> wow.
6: I, I can't believe that's on anybody's radar. Yeah. <laughs> we, we tried, uh, again with Foster, uh, and trying to figure out where the business is going and what we should be trying to be selling, uh, because our originals, we've, we've written, a, you know, a number of original scripts now that, that have never sold. And, uh, uh, we said, well, let's, everybody's doing remakes, let's do this. And, you know, we talked to David, and David had the rights to TJ Hooker, and, and, he had access to it, William Shatter, and then Shatter was willing to consider being in it either as a cameo or, or in some other form. And, uh, uh my partner met with, with Shatter, and we developed the story, and, Pitched it all over town, couldn't sell it. That one I don't know why, I, unless we're just considered the old guys. And I don't know what I don't know what was wrong with T.J. Hooker. It seemed like that makes as much sense as any remake they're doing now. Because the show is remembered fondly. I'm more surprised at how many people know the show.
9: Yeah, and there was that um, Showtime movie with uh, Eddie Murphy and De Niro, I think, and they had Shatner in there, and it was kind of T.J. Hooker esque.
6: <laughs> yeah.
9: I don't know if anybody's ever used T.J. Hooker esque in a uh, sentence before, but I'm I'm glad to claim it. You can claim it. What are you currently
6: working on? Well, we are, well, we, we've gone two different routes now in the last few years. Um, we wrote the thing, the short circuit thing well now, a few years ago, and then we've written a few other things that, like I say, that didn't get made. Did an adaptation for a book for a company and didn't, they, did, they decided not to make it. Uh, so we, uh, I have started writing novels because <laughs> based on our pitch, one of them is based on our pitches because, uh, and I was actually, this was actually suggested to me by a studio executive. We pitched him this idea and he said, God, that is just the greatest idea, but I can't touch it because it's not based on anything. I mean, he literally said that. And, oh, wow. And he, and he said, you know, if it was only a comic book or something, so... And there's actually there are actually companies now that exist that will take your idea. You have to pay them for it. They will take your idea and turn it into a comic book and publish a few copies of it, and then you can run to the studio and say, "See, this was on a newsstand for an hour somewhere." Uh, we haven't actually tried that, but I took one of our pictures and I turned it into a novel a year or two ago, and then I wrote a novel that I'd always wanted to write, um, and I'm writing a third novel now. And so that's on one side of the creative thing, in the hopes that these things might get enough traction before then Hollywood would turn around and go oh it's a novel maybe we'll make it uh, And uh, then uh, we are we have now decided to pursue television um, because that's literally where all the creative stuff is happening. I mean all the stuff that is not being made by the major studios is being made uh, for television. So we are developing a TV a TV pilot now. Uh, we don't, we don't have it set up anywhere, but we're developing a pilot, an idea that we've loved for years and years, that we could not possibly sell to mainstream Hollywood now, because it's wacky. And, uh, uh, so that's our next thing to try to take out. We're going to be making the rounds with that shortly, in, in the next month or two, I think.
9: Well, I hope it uh, works out. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Thank you. I know it's got to be tough. I, whenever I talk to people who are screenwriters, it's always like, oh, it doesn't look like you've done anything since 2004, okay. but I know you're still eating, so.
6: <laughs> you know, a lot of stuff doesn't get made. Um, uh, I mean, most stuff doesn't get made. But yeah, but, it, but it's been different. I mean, I won't, I won't lie. I mean, it's been really different with the sea change and how Hollywood operates and how it takes this material. Brent and I have really found ourselves, you know, sort of on the outskirts of the business again in a, in a weird way. just like we were, you know, all back in the short circuit.
9: Well, let's hope things uh, change again and you can <laughs> yeah, I hope so. go back. I won't say you were the flavor of the month, but you're definitely on a roll there. So let's hope that happens again for you. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that you're writing books. So that's awesome.
6: Yeah. Yeah. They're fun. Yeah. We should, we should mention them. There's one called Tucker's monster, which, is, which I would love to turn into a movie and, uh, about a guy chasing, it's kind of a Scooby-Doo story, really. Even though I thought of it before Scooby-Doo was invented. I, this is a novel I started 30 years ago before I ever thought of screenwriting. And I set it aside, I, I set it aside, and then, uh, and then when Brent and I hit this kind of slow period a couple of years ago, it was slow enough that we weren't, you know, there were months, month or two here and there where we weren't working, we said, well, I, I'm just gonna finish this novel, so I did. And then I got the idea of turning our pitch called Frady Cats, uh, into, uh, into a book, and I, I worked it out with Brent and said, we, we, we worked out what will happen if somebody's interested in it, how we'll, how we'll, <laughs> if we're so lucky, how we'll divvy it up. But, uh, yeah, I turned, it's a picture, but it's, uh, the, the short version of that is two cats that you've never heard of. Whatever I want, it's a mashup, it's a mashup. It's, it's the Frankenstein story, except there's two crazy cats who cause everything that happens, that goes wrong for Dr. Frankenstein, is caused by them behind the scenes. <laughs> They're even the cause of Igor turning into Igor. He's actually a good looking young man when the story starts. That's called Frady Cat. Now, that that's actually gotten some nice reviews. That's been out, uh, I guess, a year and a half or so.
9: Now, you wrote a a book when um
6: back in the early eighties, wasn't okay. it? About uh <laughs> you have done your research. Uh yeah, I wrote uh, I turned my master thesis into a book on special effects. And it was on, on stop motion animation and the Ray Harryhausen style of animation. Um and, uh, um, yeah, and actually sold a few copies of that. Of course, my publisher only published 1,500 copies of it, so now they're fairly valuable. <laughs> oh, wow, nice. <laughs> it's funny. I've heard, I've had people tell me that if they've seen them, you know, on eBay for $200. I don't know if people are getting $200 for them, but, yeah. but they're, yeah, there's not very many. Of them. It's called Puppets and People. Gasty title come up that my, you know, my publisher insisted upon. It's a very nuts and bolts. Book about stop motion animation and compositing animation with with live action.
9: Now, were you able to kind of leverage some of the, your skills when it came to that to some of the
6: movies that you did, like Tremors? Tremors, yes. When we had control, as I say, I tried to convince Don Batham to do uh, to do Johnny Five as a as a stop motion puppet. I thought it was perfect for it because the one thing that people kind of don't like about stop motion, at least old school stop motion, was that it was it had a kind of a jerky staccato feel. And, uh, uh, and I said, that's perfect, you're a robot, you won't notice it. I, we, I, these are the days when you could actually do things like call the studio up and have them screen Terminator, you know, and call John and say, let's go to the Warner Brothers screening room and screen Terminator. And uh, I showed him in the end of Terminator with the stop motion robot there. But by then his mind was made up, nope, the robot's gonna be on my set. So, <laughs> but yeah, in Tremors I was able to do that. I, I can't remember the stop motion, but a lot of the tricks that I did, In the educational films, I I did a lot of optical effects and and, uh, reverse effects and and superimposition effects. You know, I would superimpose smoke over the screen. And and, and in in those movies, it was very bizarre. It was very, uh, because you just never saw special effects in educational movies, you know. And uh, so the, the movie sold well because of that. Get the room full of smoke with a little kid. Well, there was no smoke in the room with a little kid. And
9: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that was one of the things when it came to Jonathan Melville's book about Tremors was when he's explaining some of the special effect shots. I was like, I never knew that was a special effect shot, or I never knew that it was a miniature versus a full, you know, full size creature. Oh, and yeah. just yeah,
6: I mean, we were so lucky to get uh, the Skota brothers, Jonathan Mel, Skota. They've done, you know, they've won multiple Academy Awards, and, 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 their stuff is just, their miniature work is just unbelievable. We were, <laughs> it was, it was one of their first movies that they did on their own. They had worked for a long time, as it was for ABI, for Tom, and, uh, uh who, who am I, Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff. Uh, that was their first, they didn't even have offices or a building when they <laughs> signed on to do tremors. And, uh, yeah, both those sets of effects people have gone on. They do extremely well.
7: Yeah,
9: they're
6: gorgeous effects, and they still work today. They do. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing. If you get a miniature right, it works, and there, I and mean, you can't take anything away from it. You know, in a way that some things don't. You know, it's it's sad too. Uh, certain kinds of opticals um, get messed up when you when you go from film to electronic. Like I saw Dragon Flare a few years ago. I, I wrote an article about Dragon Flare. It's like springs to mind. Uh, and Matthew Robbins had been very careful to keep the dragon in the dark and make sure that the matte line would would not be would be, be helped by the dragon being in the dark. So all those things are timed to be uh, uh, to to help the effects in every way they can. He even wrote in eclipses so that when the dragon comes to the surface, it's still dark and. Uh I saw. I don't know if this is the case now. I don't even know what form the movie's available in now. But when it came to television, the dragon scenes were were destroyed because hmm. the television engineers they have one knob, you know, you know, and they look at an oscilloscope and they turn the knob until the oscilloscope hits the line that they want it to hit, and everything has to be that brightness. So it looked ghastly. The dragon swamping through the cave with giant mat lines around it.
9: Ugh. Yeah, even seeing something like Terminator 2, I saw it in the theater so many times, and then when I saw it again on television, I was like, oh, my God, this
6: just looks cheap now. Yeah, things can fall apart, and the, the transfer to digital has to be handled very carefully, or yes, or it, can, it can fall apart, and it makes no sense to me. I mean, I'm sure people who understand this, you know, the, the technology better than I do can explain it, but it always baffles me. I go, well, here's the image. It looks perfectly fine on film. Now I'm going to put it over here on digital. Now it looks like crap. What happened? Yeah. Well, hopefully one of these days I'll figure it all out, right? When they really work on the transfers, they're amazing. You know, boy, I got I got the Ben Hur, the, the the Blu-ray Ben Hur, and I'm always trepidatious because I always say, "Oh God, man are going to blow it. It's the most beautiful Blu-ray I've gotten yet. It's oh wow, staggering, just staggering. Movie. I have a giant, you know, HD TV. I always thought I was going to have a screening room and HD. I, it never happened. I, I had almost. A couple of times, we bought 35 millimeter projectors, but I never had the room to set them up. And uh, and I had friends who had 35 millimeter screening rooms, and it was really deeply envious of them because you know, we would screen twenty thousand leaves in Technicolor, you know. Oh wow! And it was just great. And, and, and the guy's screening room wasn't that big, so the image was about the size of a of an HDTV. But at that size, 35 millimeter looks like you're looking through a window. You know, it's just so crystal clear. But now. Yeah. But now eight has finally caught up to where I can I can survive. If the transfers are good then I'm I'm happy.
10: and we're talking about all things Tremors this week with Jonathan Melville. Now, Jonathan, we talked a little bit about your book, Seeking Perfection, the unofficial guide to Tremors. So uh, let's talk about how this whole idea came about for you and some of the challenges in writing the book. So um, when did you get the idea that this was a project you wanted to tackle?
11: Well, I first became involved with the world of Tremors uh, back in about 2010. Uh, there's a there's a magazine in the UK. I don't know if you've if you, you maybe get it in America called uh, called SFX, which is a sci-fi kind of uh, horror magazine, uh, which I've been buying for many years. And I pitched them the idea of, uh, of a Tremors article because I think in, 2000, yeah, in 2011 it was the 21st anniversary of Tremors. And they went for it. So I contacted Steve Wilson and Michael Gross, and they both were very kind to to, uh, reply and had some great interviews with them. But they were very long interviews, and all I could include in the interview for the magazine was um, maybe a 1,000 words or 1,500 words or so. So in the intervening years, years after that, I was sort of thinking, uh, why is nobody doing a book about tremors? I'd love to read about it. And the 25th anniversary was coming up and I'm a a film journalist here in the UK and I do bits and pieces for for magazines and uh, radio and things like that. But I've never written a book. So I think part of it, I was a little bit I thought, you know, I can write uh features but I, I, writing a book is maybe just a bit a bit too far and also everybody's in America and I'm in the UK in Scotland um but then I don't know just at some point I thought well if no one else is doing this why don't you try it so I asked permission really of Steve Wilson uh, and just said would you mind if I wrote a book about your your films and he very graciously said fine please do so that's where it started so that was in 2000 and 2013, I started really just getting going on to IMDb Pro, which you have to sign up and pay for, and then you can start finding out agents' names and addresses, and just start going through the list of of actors and producers and various people involved in the films, and and started emailing them, and, and a lot of them start coming back to me and saying yes, I'll be happy to talk about it, and that's really where it uh, it got started, and. I managed to speak to around about 50 people, maybe just over 50 people involved in, the, in all four films and the TV show, um, including, uh, of course, Steve Wilson and Brent Maddock and Michael Gross and Ron Underwood and Nancy uh, Nancy Roberts, who's a, a key part in this. She's the producer of the films and she was the agent of, um, of Steve Wilson and, and Brent Maddock. So she's been a big part of this. And I think what was happening as well, little did I know that it's quite a small community there in, in, in L.A. And they're kind of like a family, the guys that, that made the Tremors films, Stampede Entertainment they're called. What, what was some, sometimes happening is I, I was emailing, let's say, a producer or a production designer and saying, would you like to be interviewed? They were then going back to the guys at Stampede and saying, who is this guy? Should we be speaking to him? And they were saying, yeah, he's okay. And then they were coming back to me, so I couldn't have done it without them. And then I decided something that I was, I was really keen as a as a fan to know is why the sequels happened. And it's fine, okay, you you, you can speak to the writers and they can tell you how they wrote the script and the director, but I was interested to find out from Universal Studios why they made the sequels, which you don't often reads, not in the books I've read anyway, people going back to the kind of number crunchers and asking them why they greenlit this film in 1995. Um, and they spoke to me as well. So I've got some great interviews with um, the people at Universal Studios Home Entertainment, including Nance, um, a lady called Patty Jackson, who has been a part of all of the sequels, and a chap called Louis Fiola, who started up the division. Um, anyway, so yeah, so I've spoken to lots of different people. And I suppose the challenges really were just me being in the UK and then being in, in America. And we were eight hours ahead here. So lots of Skype chats, lots of scheduling of of uh, conversations via Skype late at night over here. But everybody was just really nice and really friendly. And and uh, and it was a, a huge privilege really an honor to speak to all these guys and um and the sad part of it for me in a way is that although I feel it's brilliant this book is now virtually ready uh, I didn't when I started writing I didn't tremors 5 wasn't happening there was rumors of it but I didn't quite expect it to happen that's delayed things a little bit but one of the sadder sides of it is that some of the people I spoke to have now passed away sadly so one of the people I was really keen to interview was Jim Jacks at Universal Studios, who you guys may have, may know the name and, and people listening to the podcast might know him as a, a big part of Hollywood for many years. He, was, he helped kickstart the careers of the Coen brothers, Richard Linklater and Kevin Smith and um, he was a big name in Hollywood for many years And at Universal and he was the guy that really got, got Tremors greenlit at Universal in 1989 and he spoke to me and he sadly died um, early in 2014 so that was a that was a a shock and then people like Tony Gennaro Miguel he passed away last year after a few months after I spoke to him and then most recently sadly uh, Marcia Strassman who who um, again I'm sure you know from many films and tv series she passed away she was in the tv series so it's it's just um you know, when you're sitting as a as a film fan, sitting at home and, and you know, you're on Twitter and Facebook and you see these these stories popping up about people passing away and actors and you think, Oh, they were great and you think I was just chatting to them a few months ago and they said, Phone me anytime to chat and you think, I wish I had done you know. So there's a sad sorry to 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 touch on the sad side of it, but um I guess I'm I'm just glad I spoke to these these people and that their memories have been captured. So so yeah, there's been many highs doing this and, and a few a few lows.
9: So does the release of Tremors 5 is that going to be delaying the book? Are you going to be writing about that as well?
11: That has delayed it a bit, yes. My original plan was to bring the book out in December 2014 and I, I mean I must admit as someone who's not written a book before uh, this is about 80,000 words or so and I kind of underestimated, first of all, the amount of effort in writing it but mainly the amount of time editing it. That kind of delayed me a little bit because I just thought I've got to get, it's got to get more people reading this and, and commenting, and picking up spelling mistakes and and things like that. But yes, Tremors Five was announced in October very quickly. It just I did get an email from Michael Gross to say he was going to South Africa, and I thought, oh, okay, so that was October and it was due to be out in December. So yeah, there was that debate: do you do you hold off and just put a line in at the end that says, oh, by the way, Tremors Five will be out something. Or do you actually try and do a bit more? so the plan at the moment is to include more in tremors 5 and I'm just putting the feelers out just now to see who who um, you know how these non-disclosure agreements uh, work with, with the actors because Michael Gross isn't allowed to say too much. So yeah so it's going to be delayed so I think it might be out nearer perhaps nearer we heard this just uh, last week. The Charmers 5 was going to be out in October 2015, so um, hopefully it won't be that long until it comes out, the book comes out, but maybe near the spring, maybe near the summer. Hard to say at the moment. I just want it to be good. I want it to have as much information as possible so that someone buying it doesn't think, oh, I've got to wait for the updated version to read about the fifth one.
9: So does this give you time now to get uh, Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon?
11: (laughs) Uh, I wish. i would tried, Kevin. Kevin, if you're listening, I'm sure he's a fan uh, of the podcast. Please get in touch. Kevin Bacon, just for many years, hasn't wanted to talk about Tremors, which is kind of baffling because I think it's one of his best films. And Fred Ward doesn't do interviews, I don't think. So I would love them to be involved. I mean, in 2014, at the end of, I think it was around about August, September time, Kevin Bacon did go on a on a talk show or a, a, an internet news site or something and said he would actually like to do a reboot or a, or a sequel a 25 years on sequel to Tremors, which I think is is quite amazing. So it's for someone that's that's not really been that interested for years to suddenly say that he wants to star in a sequel is fascinating. But I don't know how the Tremors how Tremors Five affects affects that. So who knows? Would you want to watch a any tremors with uh, with Kevin Bacon?
9: Personally, I love Kevin Bacon. So, I would be all about that. Um, I mean, he, he is always entertaining. He, he is even when he's he's kind of like I feel a little bad saying this, but he's almost like a Gene Hackman where even when he's in a bad movie, he's great. You know, the movie might not be all that, but he definitely pulls his weight. And he makes a lot of movies that I wouldn't necessarily watch He makes them entertaining. So to see, like, I just rewatched The Stir of Echoes a couple weeks ago. Fantastic. And he is so compelling in it. And just he, I mean, really, at this point in his career, when he made Tremors, he was doing so many great things. Rob, I'm sure you've seen The Big Picture before. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you feel about it, but I love that movie. And that was one of those where it just kind of flew under the radar for a long time. And I don't know if people really have ever gone back and kind of appreciated that movie. But like that and she's having a baby. I mean, these were were great different turns he's just always to me provided some very compelling roles and even when he's in a smaller role like in jfk Mm -hmm. i mean he he knocks it out of the park
10: and i'll even go one further how about a role that he doesn't even say anything he has that cameo bit in trains planes and automobiles where he races steve martin for the cab i mean just even something stupid like that it seems to work i mean um you know, I, I had a friend of mine that said everything's better with bacon and he was talking about the meat. But I think that, you know, Kevin Bacon and something does elevate it. Oink, chop, sizzle, crunch. Holy a shit,
4: there's the guy from Friday the 13th who got stabbed to the fucking neck. Let's
10: sizzle with a crunch.
11: I, I guess you guys don't know about what Kevin Bacon's doing in the UK at the moment. do you? The, the, the adverts, the commercials that he does in the UK, do you know anything about these? Nope. No, no. well, for the last, um, uh, I want to say year, maybe a bit more at uh, the cinema, we've got a mobile phone network here, or, or a cell phone network called EE. Hey, I'm Kevin Bacon, star
4: of A Few Good Men, Tremors, a Footloose, but I'm not here to talk about Kevin Bacon, Hollywood A-lister. I'm here to talk about Kevin Bacon, center of the universe. Some time ago, I realized that I was connected to everyone in the world, and I mean everyone. Take this lovely boy here. He and Kevin Bacon are connected. I was in Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks did Philadelphia. Philadelphia tastes great on a cracker. It's a cracker, was Frank Carson's catchphrase. Catchphrase was on ITV, same as Coronation Street. And we all know where Ken Barlow drinks, the Rovers. So you want to be as connected as me? You want a slice of Kevin Bacon? Well, here's how you get some. You bacon up to a new network that's designed not just for your mobile life, but for your whole digital life. All right, Kevin, what's up, Pete? Check it out. Malcolm's streaming his favorite TV show without waiting donkeys for it to buffer, right? He's connected. Julie's watching a film. Oops. But don't worry. You can continue it from exactly where you left off on your TV at home. Connected. Look, the future. You could be paying for pork scratchings with your phone. Lily's connected. May I? Conan's gaming live on 4G with a guy in Peru. Kind of weird. But still connected and with over 700 new stores to start your connections rolling the possibilities are endless. Are they not? This Britain is how bacon rolls super fast mobile 4g and fiber only on EE the new network for your digital life
11: Almost every time you go to the cinema There is a Kevin Bacon advert and he plays on the persona of Kevin Bacon coming to and the six degrees thing And so now in the UK people have got a different view of Kevin Bacon you know, he's in, of course, big films and, and things, but he's now also making taking the, the Mickey out of himself. You know, playing up his persona.
10: Well, I was thinking, what would be nice is um, is to put Kevin Bacon in a uh, sort of a smash sequel, I guess, of Footloose and Tremors. Now, what I'm thinking is, because you have Tremors, right? You have the, the worms under the ground, and it makes the the ground move. He could, you know, beat them by dancing or something. See
9: the boy who dances away oppression there you go <laughs> he was uh, in a series of visa commercials
4: where he was doing the whole kevin bacon number okay so i was in a movie with an extra eunice whose hairdresser wayne attended sunday school with father o'neill who plays racquetball with dr sanji who recently removed the appendix of him who dumped you sophomore year ah. so you see we're practically brothers
9: I'm glad that he can – because I know when the whole Oracle of Kevin Bacon thing, Six Degrees, came out, he was just like, this is stupid. But I'm glad that now he has kind of embraced that. And just for for the record, my Kevin Bacon number is three. Because I was in the People versus George Lucas that Todd Hansen was in. He was in the Aristocrats with John Stewart, and then John Scu- Stewart was in one called Scum Rocks with Kevin Bacon. So I'm very happy that I have such a low Bacon number. I
10: have the same. Nice. Yeah, because I was in Tainted, right? And Sean is in Tainted, and he was in Crime Wave, the Sam Raimi movie with Brian James. And Brian James and Kevin Bacon were in a film together, and I can't remember what it is. So
11: uh, it's three, yeah.
9: Jonathan, do you know your Bacon number?
11: No, I, I don't know. I, d- I don't know if it counts that I've interviewed people who worked with him. I don't know. Does that count?
9: I don't think so, but I'm not sure.
11: Got to get you cast in something or as an extra. There you go. Right, but no, it's, he does seem to be at ease with his himself a little bit more now. So Chalmers, what would that be? Chalmers six then, I suppose, or would they? Would they maybe miss out the? Who knows if they do a, a new one? Maybe they'll miss out the, the ones in between and just make it Tremors revisited. I don't know quite what you would call that. But.
9: Well, I'm glad they're keeping the numbers. You know, we were yeah. talking today, my wife and I, about uh, the Terminator franchise, and I was glad You know, Terminator now has dropped the numbers, but I'm glad... I like when they keep the numbers to these films. You know, it makes it too confusing otherwise. It's like, I don't even know how many Star Trek movies they're up to. You know, is it Star Trek 11 now, 12? I don't know. But, you know, once they got to Generations and they started dropping the numbers, it was like, oh, fuck, now I can't remember which came for Insurrection or this other one. Uh, So, yeah, I'm glad it's Tremors 5 coming out. Maybe Kevin Bacon will be 5.5, you know, who knows. Yeah,
11: yeah. Or what's that film? In um, I don't know if you've seen the uh, the third Lion King film, which is set behind the scenes of the first one.
9: Oh yeah, we made reference to that on our um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead episode. Well, yes.
11: maybe maybe we'll <laughs> do something similar with uh, with, uh, with the new Tremors, but, but no. the Tremors prequel. Yeah, yeah, come back, Kevin, All is forgiven.
9: All right, we are going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. I'm Jack Death.
6: I'm a trooper in the 23rd century. Jack Death, Angel City PD, may I see your stats? What did I do? Under Section 7 of the Penal Code, the council authorized me to administer you a transfer suspect examination. You can't give me a TSE without a warrant. I got your warrant right here, pal. Okay, okay, okay. I don't want any trouble. Hold out you? My job is hunting transfers. I got nothing to hide. Finding them. Negative. And
4: them.
7: Look out! <laughs>
4: Of course sometimes they find me first then it's a little more complicated how do you know whistler's location we monitored a line disruption in los angeles december 1985 and zant ash and i all had ancestors in the city then If you think I'm bringing that scum up the line, you got the wrong trooper. Unless you stop Whistler, everything the council has accomplished for the last 40 years will count for nothing.
8: Okay, let's say I believe this. You're a cop from the future and you're chasing this guy Piper. Whistler. Why doesn't he just turn you into one of these zombies, or me?
6: Trancing only works on squids, people with weak minds, easily controlled. Lena, I'm from another time, another world. I don't even know what you people eat for lunch.
4: Okay, I got fried rice, egg rolls, and beef chow mein.
6: Beef?
1: You mean like from a cow? I thought it was rough in the 23rd century.
6: I didn't know how hot it could get.
1: Jack? How's my tan? It was getting hotter all the time.
6: I guess I just attract a certain element, no matter what century I'm in.
7: This way, mister! Anyway,
1: I gotta run now.
4: I'm on with the ladies.
7: Over here, Ashby!
10: Never even been here before. Well, from Tremors to Trancers, next week we'll be discussing the low-budget sci-fi neo-noir Trancers. We'll be joined by Jay Bowman of Red Letter Media. That's if he can escape from Mr. Plinkett's house. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Jonathan Melville. Now, Jonathan, one more time for the people in the chief seats and uh, the folks who want to keep up to date. With seeking perfection, the unofficial guide to tremors. Is there a website, or where can we get more information?
11: Yeah, well, you can you can go to Twitter, uh, Twitter, uh, just tremors guide on Twitter, and the same on Facebook, and actually the website is the same. So tremorsguide.com, and uh, and I'll keep you up to date as soon as I know when the book's coming out. I'll let you know once I've got my uh, interviews for tremors five in the in the can. Then uh, I will. I'll let everybody know. So, yeah, please, please keep an eye on those.
9: And we will also be sure to link to those through our website, projection booth.com. And once you get some sort of uh, release date or anything, we'll be sure to let people know and bang the drum about that. Same thing when it comes to Tremors 5. When we get any kind of information about when that's going to be out, we will let folks know. So thanks again, Jonathan, for coming on. I was glad we could finally make this happen right here at the 25th anniversary mark of the original Tremors. So, And also thanks to everybody out there for listening to the Projection Booth, if you've enjoyed enjoyed it, head on over to iTunes, leave us a review and some stars, take it to the social networks and bang the drum there, let people know about the Projection Booth. You know, we do an okay job. I think we're uh, the most okay podcast you might listen to this week.
2: Well, pardon me, but you've had my attention. Every since you strolled. When